0: I don't yeah. know, if you ever scored for a corner current? Have you ever I've, taken a corner? I've, I've never, absolutely not. I only give them away. Okay, let's talk about the Irish bias. Keep up to date with the latest WSL action and the biggest interviews. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTB Sports app now.
1: OTB
2: AM With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor. With exfoliating bar. All right, all right,
3: all right. You're very welcome along. It is Tuesday morning. Is it Tuesday or Wednesday morning? It's Tuesday, Tuesday the morning. 15th of
4: March. Tuesday
3: 20, the 15th of March. It is because, sure, doesn't Cheltenham start today. We haven't missed anything just yet. As it stands, every docket's a winner. Every single one of us mm. has money in our pockets. You, you thought for a moment there that you'd forgot to wake up in a cold sweat and be like, shite,
4: I forgot to put my bets down. I, well, I, are you getting involved? I, I tend to. I haven't really for the last couple of years... Um, working from home and all that I kind of like the
3: communal nature of it all I'm such a bandwagoner the filth of the the, the bookie shop It's like I just like want to feel something the cigarette kind of slowly slowly burning your fingers as you're like watching the race you Yeah, exactly. had it just standing there just f- feeling at one with the world a couple of inches of um, ash slowly nicotining yellowing those fingers yeah my, my fingernails slowly turning your butt dark. crack miraculously appearing out of nowhere <laughs> That's what happens. You slowly morph into one of the the doy ends of the bookie shop.
4: Yeah, yeah. I want to, want to want to spend my days for the next four days in a in a kind of grimy pub with uh, a five meter walk to bookies. That's that's, that's one what, what what I want my existence to be.
3: I don't want to come across like a. Uh, I, uh, this is not going to sound good, but like we didn't need the back to back, we didn't need the back to back bank holidays this week, did we? We need them later in the year. Like, remember, going to do something other than well, drink go- and watch racing? Exactly. It's like this. This, this week's already looked after. Yeah. What, what are you doing? You're kind of ruining this for us. Because the, there's the, there will be more people. There'll uh, Just be
5: an expectation. Gonna go. that You're going
3: to have to do stuff. It's a it's a bank holiday. Don't waste the bank Speak holiday. I mean, like what? We weren't wasting the bank holiday. We were sitting watching racing. Yeah. Having the crack. It's a very good point. I had. And now I, it's like yeah. oh oh. Everybody has family stuff to do. <laughs> <'Cause laughs> well, Got to spend time with family. Like, okay. Some of us
4: don't. Some of us absolutely do not, <laughs> and will not. <laughs> It'll just be.
3: But your friends will expect you to do stuff. You will. You yes. will have an expectation. S- on, S- sitting in a
4: pub five meters away from a bookies is oh. uh, the expectation. Okay.
3: Well, I mean, you weren't going to do that anyway, though. Uh, well,
4: so probably, then you I, don't get the
3: benefit of I the have done day. a bit of
4: work, to be I mean, fair. I, you know. But then I mean, you could just. Head off at half ten in the morning, and oh, it is work watching the racing. Yeah, sorry, of course, taking notes
3: with uh, with my cap on. How has how has the bank holiday? How is it affecting everybody's plans for the the extra bank holiday? Because obviously, and look, it's a fluky situation where the Thursday happens to be St Patrick's Day. Because if the Tuesday was St Patrick's Day, they wouldn't have given us a second one. Well, they would have given us a Monday, I suppose. But if it was a Wednesday, they wouldn't have. So I guess whatever was happening there, we're giving us a second one. I'll shut up now. If you want to get in touch this morning, oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number. There's a, the, the, the most <laughs> turgid stream of consciousness you've ever seen. Bank holiday analysis
4: coming at you fast this morning.
3: <laughs> <laughs> OTVAM is brought to you by uh, Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, let's talk about Chelsea. Uh, let's talk about Liverpool. Let's talk about Man City. Let's talk about whatever you're having. The, um, the poor Chelsea team are going to have to travel 10 hours round trip to Middlesbrough. It's almost like they're a football team who have a match to go to. It's like, what? Why? How? Normally they would fly. Now they're going to have to get the bus the way almost every sports team in the world travels to uh, events. I realise that air travel has largely replaced it, but there's still a bit where you get on a bus and you go somewhere. It's like not that big a deal. It's 10 hours. Mm. Five hours there, you play a match. Five hours back, potentially the next day. It ain't that big a deal. Yeah, supporters have to do it all the time. Like... Underage
4: Amateur teams have to do it all the time.
3: They might even have two buses. Do you know? There's going to be like plenty of room. There's going to be those buses with the the bits where you can lie down if you need to. There'll be a massage table. There'll be like a support staff. They're not really... uh, They are in danger of losing the public. When it comes to this stuff. There's also been uh, links of um, another Saudi businessman uh, with the potential for buying them. So we're going to keep a very close eye on that story. That one's being poo-pooed straight away. It's like, oh, that couldn't possibly happen. But you know what? It could happen. That's exactly what could happen. That's what did happen with Newcastle. And no one gave a fiddler's up until now. So, um, and the only other story before we actually get into the meat of what's happening is uh, the, the back page splash and a lot of the, or the front page splash and the sports section in a lot of the English papers are that they could be tearing down Old Trafford. It's like, ah. Oh they're going to they're going to raise it to that ground it's like yeah and then they're going to build a gleaming new stadium of 90,000 capacity that's going to be one of the best stadiums in the world it's like oh you know sacking Old Trafford like the invading horde that they are or modernising it to the point where you know it's a much more comfortable and better fan experience which one of those two things is closer to the truth I, I mean it's probably um it's probably it's probably not going to happen, is the other thing. It's like there are three options. One is to fix one of the stands and do it slowly. Another is to sack it to the ground. And the other one is to like do a re- 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 reanimate the whole thing. It's like more than likely what they'll do is they will take down Old Trafford because it, it's not actually a beautiful old. It's not like Rangers or it's not like even Villa, which has this kind of awesome um, red brick stadium. Old Trafford's grand. Like, it's very impressive as the stadiums built really in the 90s go in terms of the size. and. But the view isn't great from everywhere and it's not particularly comfortable. And um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, there's no way of building something new that reflects the values of the club. Maybe the only thing that we can do these days is to keep the the battered tattered part of the building and go oh that was the old part and that's more important it's like I think what will probably happen
4: here is that somewhere in the middle will be the, the end which will but be a redevelopment just, of a stand
3: should they just build a new one
4: <clears throat> like that is one of the things that uh, Andy Midden in particular says when he comes on the show a lot is that the, the, the stadium is in a state of disrepair it is this emblem of uh, an ageing club uh, a club that has seen its best days uh, already and uh, the future doesn't look too bright so I guess that would be emblematic of a, of a brighter future maybe for Manchester United but uh, I guess there's a practical level to it as well just build yourself a nicer stadium that is worthy of, of, of a team that will hopefully from their perspective be better over the next little while Yeah and
3: the only thing that they could do while that was happening is probably play in City in City Stadium well, which you know, was was controversial working. enough uh, at 7.37 this morning we should talk about the big news last night and that was that City couldn't score at Palace uh, here is Pep Guardiola and what he had to say after a nil-all draw against Crystal Palace
5: Well we, we play a really really good game uh, create a lot of chances especially in the first half uh, difficult side defend really well tight and they were with the rhythm and uh, yeah we play a really good game created so much in the first half. Did you look to try and change anything at half-time, or was the message more of the same, please? No, that continue the same. <laughs> so, patient, no concede, and we have our chances. We had it, we could not convert. Sometimes happen.
6: Second half, did you consider making any changes of personnel, or did you always believe that what you had out there would,
5: would see the job, They were would playing find good. a breakthrough? Yeah, I thought a lot to make some changes, but uh, they were playing good, and I was, the guys who were inside have the ability to score a goal. But, um, yeah, at the end we play more with motion, they defend and with their people. But, uh, yeah, we... Uh, I think they, they were playing good.
6: You're pleased with the performance. Was it difficult to feel anything other than disappointment given where we are in the season and the fact that you dominated the game tonight?
5: We played to win the game. So we create more, we concede few, the stats are there. The way we played was amazing in the difficult stadium with the grass not perfect and we were we were there all the time we without the ball so we did a good game
3: yeah but the grass was unsuitable for the, the game they're, they're all covered in grass stains afterwards it wasn't like they didn't try uh, yeah. but they made no subs what's the point in having the biggest squad in world football if you make no subs yeah it is strange that's that's definitely one of the, the talking points from last night like uh, so their attacking
4: substitutions that were on the bench were, were Raheem Sterling and uh, Gabriel Jesus so on uh, on top of that, I guess you could have brought it, it like in to change things in midfield. But the thing is that Manchester City were playing very, very well and it looked like they were going to get a winner. They hit the post a couple of times. The João Cancelo effort, which smacked the post, I think, goes right in at number one in terms of the most hourly, satisfying post. Uh, connections with a ball of all time it was just it was beautiful I'm not sure is the microphone position at Selhurst Park in the optimum place or whether or not it was just the strike and the ball was so good but Selhurst Park obviously is a a place where title dreams tend to go to die and uh, Manchester City experienced that last night and uh, the ball isn't back in Liverpool's court just yet but they've got a, a serious leg up at this point They always beat Arsenal except for that one weird time when uh, it didn't happen during COVID in an empty stadium and uh, they were a better team than Arsenal and they tend to get the job done against Arsenal. So after Wednesday night... There was a good chance they'll be in a very, very good position uh, going into not going into the game, but with one eye on that game against Manchester City at the start of the next month.
3: You're not as an Arsenal fan trying to year Liverpool there, are you? Is that is that what's happening? What I'm, ju- I'm just gazing into my crystal ball and telling you what's going to happen. Okay, your crystal balls have been very accurate in the past as yeah. well. So uh, that that was the story with that. and We'll talk about that in a bit more detail later on. If you're a Liverpool fan, you're very happy this morning. I'd like to hear from you. If you're a City fan, you're starting to get worried. Would like to hear from you. If you're a Man United fan, Pochettino. And Harry Kane are going to come as a package. We'll talk about that with Samuel Luckhurst a little bit later on. We do know that he's not a one-man team, though. And like, are you gonna? How are you gonna pay for this? Because I guess I don't know. Maybe they'll. Maybe somebody will buy all those expensive players. You won't be paying the salary of all those players. If you're letting it go for free in the in the summertime. So anyway, they operate what,
4: it just in case policy. I think just in case Jesse Lingard becomes messy you just got to keep him just in case and uh, the same with all those the uh, same with Marcus Rashford just in case he becomes the Marcus Rashford role you got to keep keep these assets
3: uh, very quickly the League of Ireland last night Rovers dropped two more points uh, Sligo Rovers beat Finn Harps 3-1 Joseph Doe was on co which I think is uh, going to happen more and more uh, here he is calling the first of Aidan Kenneth's three goals last night Sligo Rovers how about you?
4: Morgan and McWoods plays it straight
3: to McDonnell Fitzgerald plays it back for
2: Keane is gonna goal! go for no, the no, no, <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to heaven.
3: This is exactly <laughs> what the League of Ireland needs. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's it's actually been great for the the title race. Um, that uh, you have a few surprise packages None of the teams with the money are running away with it just yet. Um, some of the teams that we expect to be in transition aren't actually in transition. They're just good. So um, we can still get to that a little bit later on too. If you're a League of Ireland fan you have something you want to get off your chest this morning, leave a comment in the YouTube stream. Hit subscribe on YouTube as well. Um, and the last thing we're going to talk about is the GPA. Um, so Tom Ryan has written to all of the county board's... Maybe he writes the provincial councils. I don't know. But he's certainly, he has written, anyway, about their side of the story. And their side of the story has merit. The GPA side of the story has merit. And it's bizarre that they can't find a solution to this. That's what that's what strikes me from this, is that, like, the, the top people from the GA and the GPA have been sitting in a room for ages. And the the actual solution has not been arrived at. We've reached some kind of point of brinkmanship. Yeah. Uh, Tom Parsons, I think, was
4: pretty exercised uh, last night on the on the show about you know how simple the solution is here that lads don't want to be out of pocket going training, which is a point. That it does. It's not even worth saying that it has merit. Of course, it has merit. And then the GEA are saying, well, we don't want to be having more than four instances of sessions during a week, which also has merit. But there is a middle ground here where you know the GPA, the players themselves, aren't the ones who are playing if the you know the if factors from the ESRI report from a few years ago are, are being avoided and, and and not being taken any heed of that, that managers are asking players to come train four times and then train or them play a match on top of that during the week uh, it's not necessarily the players fault that's the case and they seem to be the ones who are paying for it at the moment literally paying for it so uh, it, it's this, this sort of grey area in the middle which isn't that far away from where both parties lie and you'd think that the situation could be fixed but I wonder will the County boards and and uh, the the powers that that operate in every county have to, to intervene here and so say, listen, we'll p- either pay up the remaining uh, th- uh, remaining uh, money or have some sort of commitment that four will be the limit, four sessions will be the limit.
3: So the the four sessions limit is coming from the ESRI report, and both parties, the GA and the GPA, are quoting the ESRI report as as, you know, lies, down lies, and statistics, the devil can quote scripture for its own purposes. They're both saying, well, this, this bolsters my argument. And, like, I, I think there is a case for uh, limiting the number of sessions that teams are doing. But if teams breach that, there needs to be repercussions for it. And at the moment, what the GA is saying, the repercussions are going to be borne by the counties, and the counties are saying, no, we're not going to do it. But the, the GPA don't negotiate with each individual county. Because how could you do that? There's like, you know, it it, hmm. it would be the Wild West. So they, they negotiate centrally, which is fair enough. That's the whole point of collective bargaining, is that you don't go off as a union to each individual employer and go, uh, okay, it's like we as a union are saying, these are our standards, you meet them, and we're organizing to to uh, have a conversation with the central body. So the GA needs to get the county boards in line and say, stop having more than four sessions. And if you go over the four sessions, you're going to have to pay Right, mm-hmm. that would knock it on the head pretty quickly. At the centre of this is arrogant managers who know better than everybody else about what is needed. Right, because if the manager says, "I need you to play two games in one day," or if the manager says, "I need you to train five times a week this week just to show me you're a man," then what what choice do you have if you want to play for your county but to do it? So there are still loads of those arrogant managers who are stupid uh, in positions of power within the organisation, and that's the problem. Your solution there makes sense, but
4: it doesn't make sense in one level because what it would require is a hell of a lot of honesty, which doesn't exist. The the entire premise of Intercounty GEA is based on uh, an element of dishonesty and an element of, you know, being like, oh, we're we're, we're doing X when actually we're doing Y in terms of training, in terms of the workload. Uh, Everything is kind of kept... Hush, hush, and especially when it comes to finances in the GEA, that has certainly got a lot of connotations, which means you know money under the table or, or whatever it may be. This is over the table. This is legal. This is expenses that can be paid in a legitimate way. Uh, and if people are f- are straight up about it and uh, and front up to the idea that they are training five times a week or whatever the number is, then just be honest about it and just say listen this is what we're doing and somebody needs to to pay the players that because one of the problems here is that counties are saying well sure we are training only four times a week or we're training three times a week in a match and in reality there's a couple of you know uh secret sessions going on here and there. Like, we saw this during COVID and the, the amount of questions we still have about who was training during COVID, we still don't know the full story and we never will know the full story. It, that's just symptomatic
3: of of the way the GAA operates. It's clear that loads of teams got away with training during COVID. 100%. And uh, and that's one of the difficulties here because what you could do is you could just say to the players, you just tell us. Your your owed expenses, your owed money for showing up to training tonight. You just make sure that we know that. That's treason. It.
4: That's treason. You're then you know st- stabbing your county manager in the back by... Uh, by
3: t- telling telling on him, telling the GPA on him. So who's going to, the county board are going to tell, which is going to ultimately result in a fine for them? I don't, I don't know. So the trouble here is what, what's happened is that the players are ultimately being made to be responsible. Yes. And that's the difficulty. Yeah. It, it's the county boards and the manager's faults and and the and the GA is pushing back to the county board saying, it's, you you sort this out locally, we'll pay for the four sessions because that's what we should do. And the point is that it would be bad practice to pay for more there's a certain element of that that, that that is very understandable, but just how you're going about this is like, sort this out, Tom. You sort this out. Which doesn't really work. No, and I I suspect as well that Tom Ryan
4: isn't exactly... uh and Tom th- Parsons there, sorry, instead yeah, of Tom Ryan. Uh, yeah. Well, there's two Toms going head to head here, and uh, I think Tom Ryan... Uh, I'd say is a very strong negotiator as well. He obviously comes from his uh, financial background, and he knows the, the value of this to the GEA. I, I'm not sure how uh, well the argument that Tom Parsons is putting forward about the GEA being flush with money actually washes with with Tom Ryan, because uh, he might argue, "Well, listen, we can we can pump it into other areas. If the county board want to come up with the money to, to pay for the extra sessions, well, the,
3: the county board should should. Uh, and if they can't, then you can't train. So." You can only spend what you earn, County Board X. You can't run up these massive deficits. We're not going to bail you out anymore the way we have with all your white elephant county grounds and and bad training... Places we those days are over. But then the very legitimate retort to that is, you know, what about Kerry Group
4: and AIG, uh, and and the way that they're able to put, funnel money into your county board, and all of a sudden, uh, a county sponsored by Kerry Group or AIG have a massive leg up on on their counterparts.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, you're still stuck to your four training sessions a week, though. Like, mm. it, it works. It's, a, it's it's very hard to compare anything with the NFL obviously because you're talking about billions and billions and the NFL is essentially a cartel but it works where there's a limit of contact hours the players union just says the, the Ravens trained an extra time they had contacts a session and the Ravens lose a draft pick and it's like okay, well, we'll probably we will, we will definitely think about doing that again Yeah, there's a repercussion for it so if you trained five times one week and didn't pay your expenses or if you trained five times one week at all you're losing. You're, you're starting next season's league campaign minus two points. Look, again, I think that's a good idea. But but you know what the reaction to that will be is like, okay,
4: we're not training. And I'm just plucking this out of thin air. I'm not saying the Kerry are any doing this, but instead of training in Killarney, you're getting down to South Kerry, or you're going down to some other pitch that nobody has eyes on for your fifth training session a week. Or and that goes for every other county. So I'm the just, players aren't getting paid for that, and they're saying, no, we're not doing it. But then the county board... With the flush money from their from the big sponsor, pay for it, and well, that's the way it goes. And well, then, then at least somebody's paying for it. Yeah, and that, that's what the that's what the solution is here, or that's what the that's what needs to happen here in the end. Somebody needs to pay for for the extra training sessions that are clearly happening. And fronting up about what the reality is is probably the first step here.
3: Yeah, there's a good long track record of fronting up about the reality, isn't there? 7.50 this morning here on OTBAM, brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what's coming up between now and uh, 10 o'clock this morning. I'm going to bring you the power rankings. We've got Donald O'Neill, ex-GPA, joining us just after 8 o'clock this morning, talking about the historical beef between Pork Joyce and the GPA. Rugby with Mike Ross, the dark arts of the front row in particular, coming your way at 20 past 8 this morning. Samuel Luckhurst is going to join us at 8.50 to talk about the Manchester United situation head of the Champions League and then John Duggan is at Cheltenham to mark your card we'll go race by race through today Honeysuckle is obviously the big star of the day and all the back pages of the English papers are awash with Honeysuckle and the power of Irish racing all that kind of stuff so we'll get John's take on that as well but now at 7.50 it is time for the Power Rankings so these critics, these pundits. I absolutely
7: adore them, lads. I have unbelievable time from, but they're, they're a great bunch. but it's not acceptable. I'd like to
0: play the hard man when, when they're on it. It's not very pleasant when you're trying to manage a team. All you're looking for is a bit of civility and a bit of decency, but they just dismiss you like, like you, you know, you have nothing to do with the bloody occasion.
4: Do you remember last year when we were having this debate about the league and this possibility that the league could be taken from its home in the sort of depths of... Uh, like winter fell esque conditions and pace it into something like the the southern reaches of Westeros and the, the nice sunny climes of, of summertime. Remember, remember that conversation? Yeah, that 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 was nice. But of course, there was uh, a lot of arguments against that proposal B is what we're talking about here. Uh, one of those reasons, one of those uh, very strong arguments that was put out there was that we can't have the league in the summer because of dead rubbers. The the rubber that is dead. Uh, is is not a good thing for any competition because, of course, there are plenty of them in Gaelic games, and um and it will be it'd be this stage of the,
3: the oh league. this we're we're into the business end. I mean, six and seven, round yeah. six and seven of the league will be full of dead rubbers, which will be meaningless games that no one will want to go and see. Mm. And you will not get full county grounds. You will not have carnivals of football right around the country on a Saturday and Sunday that will definitely not happen. You will not have meaningful football played in good conditions where relegation and promotion are on the line for almost every county in the country. No, the rubber is dead, you see. And uh, that's that's a shame and nobody will turn out. Uh, except
4: we have uh, this uh, strange situation this year where you look at the league tables. It's not a strange situation. This is the case every year uh, where no one has made a league final yet. No one has been relegated. Uh, and honestly, this is a little bit extreme. But it's not that extreme. I did the sums last year. Dead rubbers aren't that uh, common in the National League. It's it's a, it's a very rare occurrence. But uh, this has been a particularly good instance of it.
3: But Owen, what about those teams who won't be playing for Sam Maguire? What about those teams? They Their seasons are over. They have nothing to play for, Owen. What about those teams? The, the,
4: the, that's the interesting argument now is that, you know, uh, Dublin would be playing for their right in the Sam Maguire at the moment which is an interesting one considering they've been doing that for the, in the this alternate universe they would have been doing that for the last few weeks anyway
3: and I think so I, how, I, I how dare many, say things would have probably gone a little How many bit people have shown up to Croke Park? It's, so let's say it's <coughs> like uh, mid-May mm-hmm. right? Let's say this is when it should be it should be mid-May who are those playing next? Their last two games are Donegal and Monaghan I'm not quite sure what uh, the, the order is And so one of those games is in Croker and a chance to play in an All-Ireland the last sixteen is on the line. Yeah, are you telling me you're not getting forty five thousand at that? No, you're going to get twenty thousand max. That's all that we're ever we're only able to. There's no financial involvement. This this is not going to have any bearing on anything.
4: And so what they played five games at the moment five five league games, like five championship games, is what that would have been. And uh, that's possibly more than they will need to play this year to get to an All Ireland semi final or get to an All Ireland final. Even even though they come through the biggest province. But anyway, the league is good, is the bottom line here. And uh, the, these final couple of weeks are set up for uh, an unbelievable finish. But that, it, it, it was ever thus with the National League. Over the last 10 years, it has been excellent. Like it, Kind of like the, the permutations that develop on the final day, they'll start to develop this weekend as we go into the, to the proper business end of this year's National League. And of course, there's massive consequence in relation to into the Championship when it comes to those Division 2 and Division 3 teams especially. So, at 32, uh, a non mover in, in Waterford. 31 uh, is Carlo. 30 is Wicklow. Uh, they all lost at the weekend. Wexford, um, uh, they lost last week in their rescheduled game to tip, but they got a win at the weekend to beat Waterford uh, by a point. They were at number 29. London, the bubble seems to have burst a little bit on the London rising. They're down to 28. They took a massive beating at the hands of Sligo at the weekend. Um, 27 is Leitrim They're staying put there They beat Carlo at the weekend uh, And Sligo are down to 26 I'll explain that in a minute Because there's a big riser in the mid-20s at the moment Longford are down to 25 They took a pretty heavy beating to Antrim After beating Westmead the previous week Which looked like a significant result for this Longford team uh, it Kind of feels like a step forward and a step backward Over the last fortnight for that team 24 is for Manna. They lost to the Louth, and then that big riser, as I mentioned, is Tipperary. Uh, they're up to 23. Could have possibly got a bigger bounce, did. Consider bringing them into the top 20. I just want to kind of see how things go over the next little while. They beat at the weekend if you missed it. They beat them by four points. Uh, a huge win for them because it did look after that early start of the uh, season where they drew at Waterford and then got beaten by eight points, let's not forget, by Leitrim. It looked like Tipperary could be stuck in Division 4 for another year. But that win against Sligo was a huge one. And then beating Cavan, which they kind of needed to do, I feel, uh, really puts them into that promotion picture. So a few more wins and they'll definitely be into the top 20 again. Really turn things around at the moment, it seems, Tipperary... Antrim, as I say, big win against Longford. They're in at 22. Limerick, then put at 21. Cork, one of the big fallers this week, down to 20, lost to Mead by 8 points. So it's Roscommon by 6 points, a draw with Clare, Derry by 9 points, Galway by 8 points, Mead by 8 points. There's a pattern emerging here where Cork just aren't good enough to contend with the top teams in Division 2 at the moment. And they are, I think, at this point, a yo yo team between Division 2 and 3 uh, for however long we see this league going. In a couple of years' time, they will be, uh, they'll make their place back in the, the top couple of the divisions, but right now, that's where they are. Uh, Leash are up to 19th. They beat Wicklow at the weekend. Uh, and Louth, they've been very impressive throughout this league campaign. Mickey Hart potentially finally getting his uh, fingerprints of this team. Uh, they're into 18. Down uh, produced egg and uh, rubbed it in all of our faces from the quick picks last Friday. We all predicted they would beat awfully. Uh, at New- in Newry to be fair on Saturday but they got beaten by Offaly a great late comeback from Offaly to beat them by a point so down are down to 17th are down to 16th not being punished too much uh, by the defeat to Tip at the weekend and Westmead are up to 15th after their win against Limerick are responding well after their defeat to Longford the previous week Offaly then as I say, that win against Down has brought them up to 14th and then Clare in at 13. Meath, uh, I've put them back up to 12th. Uh, like, I mean, uh, I they didn't can't have, be ahead of Clare, can they? I uh, like They're not ahead of Clare on the league table as far as I'm aware, but I think are they on the same points? Uh, They've to. They've yet to play each other. Right, They've so yet to play each other, so uh, I, I guess I'm probably nailing my colours to the mass on that one. I do think the last couple of games have shown a better version of me like I mean they got trounced by Galway on, on the opening day of the league, but they just stopped the Ross against Down and Offaly and then got a big win against
3: Cork. Yeah, the one thing is that um their shot selection and their shot percentage was really low, but they were clearly creating chances. Unless they were all pot shots from um you know, sixty yards, which they weren't. They was just oh. kicking really bad wides. And so if that regresses to the mean, they'll start putting up bigger scores which yeah. will give them an opportunity to win. So like you know Early season panic over a bit of a few wins. The last two league games, that's what you want to be bouncing into your championship, particularly this year. So, yeah,
4: I definitely think things are are a lot more positive in in the context of me. After the weekend, like you can't say we we saw like amazing signs against Down and Offley, like they should be beating Down and Offley in in all things being equal, and they only got draws against them. But I think that that one at the weekend feels like a little bit of a kickstart. I'm not saying they're they're going to um win the Leinster championship or anything like that, but you know, they're not going to get relegated from division 2 if I was if I was calling it now, which um which is probably better than we could have said a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Ross they put at 11th, they drew with Derry who are in at 10th. Look how that happens. 11 plays 10 and they end up drawing in the National League. It's almost as if these are the most uh, perfect flawless power rankings ever. Derry Again, our top 10 do you see that Shane McGuigan red card at the end of the game that was <laughs> absolutely mad I've never seen a player more angry in my life on a GEA pitch and he was dead right to be angry it was one of those moments where he was on a, a yellow card the first yellow card was a bit of a joke and he was attacking and naturally the uh, Roscommon man was, was holding him back but the referee booked him instead because of course he would be holding his man back to hold up his attack to go and get the winner and uh, he took his gloves off and he slammed them to the ground and he was fuming. And rightly so. And because he wasn't on the pitch then, he didn't get the, the, the last minute free to win the game for Derry. And uh, they missed it and it, was, it ended up being a draw. So
3: Derry are still getting punished for not taking a pot shot at the end of last year's championship game. It's like referees like, oh, you're just going to play this out now. <laughs> we know what you're like. P- possibly. Like, uh, it, it's interesting, I think, how um, highly
4: we now rate this Derry team is that I looked at that result against Roscommon. And maybe it's in the context of them being down a, a lot early in that game. I was thinking, well, that's that's disappointing results for Derry. Whereas a few years ago, you'd say Roscommon, a you know, team between Division 1 and 2, Derry would be doing well to be in that company. Whereas now, it kind of feels like it's a bit of a disappointment that Derry aren't beating Rascommon, But they were just one kick of a ball away from beating them and coming coming back from behind. And all of a sudden, we're like, right, Derry are grinding results out on top of all of the quality that they're showing. I still back them to get promoted.
3: Uh, because of our hot takes on the bank holiday situation at the start of the show we've kind of eaten into the time for this so we're going to have to fly through this and come back oh, to it in more detail later
4: uh, Galway are in at number 9 uh, they beat Clare by 6 points at the weekend in the top 8 uh, at number 8 is Kildare down a couple of places Donegal down a couple of places into 7th Monaghan are uh, rising into 6th after they win against Donegal at the weekend Toronto down to 5th Dublin uh, one of the biggest risers in the top page there they're up to 3 uh, sorry they're up 3 spots 2-4 two, four. Two, four. Uh, Armagh in a 3rd Mayo are in at number 2 and carrier still at number one, so no changes in the top three.
3: Okay, so what's the story with the
4: Dubs? The dubs, I like. I mean, I think that they are back to a certain extent. I mean, if they were back-back, they would have been in the, the top three. Like A couple of things to keep an eye on from that game at the weekend. I thought that Dublin got torn apart on a couple of occasions early in the season. And while it looked really bad, I thought that they were very fixable things. When they were that bad, surely the only way is up. And one of the things that you're looking at is who's going to start in, in that full-back line for them over the course of this summer. At the weekend, it was Kean Murphy, Davy Byrne and Michael Fitzsimons. Murphy only made his Championship debut in 2020 um, I mean you've he, obviously got uh, Gannon coming off the bench in that position as well it's, it feels now as if Desi Farrell has a, a back three there which are reliable which aren't going to get opened up and just are, are hitting a bit of better form that if they played Armagh again in the morning or played Kerry again in the morning I don't think their weaknesses would be as as naked as they were in those first couple of weeks of the league the half forward line is also very interesting I think it's very strong uh, Scully Howard and then Bogler at eleven, which uh, I think is a very very interesting line. I think that they, they could give a half back line a lot of problems, and then they they eight players in the score sheet as well on uh, on Sunday. So that kind of says to me the system is working because you know players popping up into their in, in, into the positions they're supposed to be picking up or in and around the D and taking their score and, and away you go. And and, and I think that that's. I think that that's a really positive sign for them as well I do think and I, I, we probably don't have time for this one but I do think that one of the I, I think the Toronto story is as big as the Dublin story
3: Okay well hold that there yeah. H- hold that thought caller and we will come back to it a little bit later on it's two minutes past eight but if you've got a view on the power rankings this week we'd like to hear from you um, some teams have moved up quite a lot some teams have not moved down enough we will come back to that a little bit later on but that is this week's power rankings
6: I absolutely adore them lads I have unbelievable time for them but they're, they're a great punch but it's not acceptable
3: Right, two minutes past eight. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, we've got plenty more to come. We're going to be talking about the GA GPA. The historic rivalry and a little bit of an update on uh, what should happen now. Because it seems like a solution is relatively straightforward. Uh, we'll get to that in uh, just a moment with Donal O'Neill. And then also this hour we're going to hear from Samuel Luckhurst about the Manchester United game tonight. And the mood music around Cristiano Ronaldo's hat-trick at the weekend. And potentially the raising of Old Trafford to the ground, literally and figuratively. That's next.
2: O-T-B. A-M. You know, January it became very clear that, that COVID, is, COVID has ended we're back to um, full, full um, you know, uh, spectators at stadiums. And then I suppose the annual report is released and 2021 was a very successful year, you know, so it even begged, uh, you know, to question whether even in a COVID year, should the players mm. have been taking a reduced mileage rate and a capped expenses? Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't think they should, but but they did. And, and, and they, they took those measures and, and, and it was just, you know, players definitely... 100% expected once we're out of COVID uh, those cost saving measures w- w- will be removed and we'll be looking to, you know, add on to what, what players need. Look mm-hmm. at inflation, you know, do we need to start exploring 70 cents because inflation this year has, has it went through the roof. But players are happy Look, just get us back to 65 cents and whatever I incur, whether it's two sessions or six sessions, that that that's the cost, and that varies throughout the year. That might be five sessions during the preseason. It might be three sessions during you know uh, the week before championship. But mm. that that was the basis of it. And fundamentally, Joe, the charter is is the main thing. Is the players get back is is is, is the few expenses they get for traveling to games. And the expenses really is a symbol of respect. Yeah. And you know, players just feel the, the GA generates a significant amount of money, and mm. in return. The collective agreement, Joe, is that all players are treated the same. All players, all divisions are treated the
3: same. Tom Parsons there, the chief executive of the GPA on the show last night, speaking with Joe Malloy. Donald O'Neill, one of the founding members of the GPA, is with us to give us his thoughts on the current impasse. Donald, on the face of it, it seems like we're not a million miles away from a solution here, and yet this is as militant as we've seen from the GPA in a long time. So what's your take or instinct on what's going on at the moment?
8: well it's back to the future really i i couldn't quite believe what i was reading yesterday i'd been traveling for a few days so i wasn't entirely up to speed but um it literally felt like uh the type of uh you know instant we would have encountered and, and argued back in the day so I, I i was just stunned that it's an issue at all to be quite honest uh it's it's appalling
3: um what, what do you think is the issue like because it- Overnight, we've had um, the letter that the GA have written to the, the county executives to say, look, uh, we have restored the 65 cent for four sessions, but uh, it's bad practice for us to mandate any more than four sessions because the ESRI report in 2019 said that the it was, it was 31 hours a week was what we were asking of players. That's too much. And that's all we're willing to, to pay for I see a little bit of merit in that, but I don't really see how it's the players' responsibility to fix that. It's actually the county managers and the county boards' problem to fix that. So it just seems like everybody kind of agrees a little bit, but they don't know what they agree on and they can't find a solution. Well,
8: I mean, to put this in perspective, that issue has never been anything but um, one of the biggest issues facing players. I remember sitting down with my cousin James McCartan when we were at Queen's University and tracking the hours that he was doing. Uh, between travel he was playing from everybody from ulster to international rules to 21's county club and i can assure you it was a lot more than 31 hours even back then that issue has never been addressed and i don't think it can be addressed in the context of an amateur sport and because there are no contractual agreements uh, to which the players are bound and the the county boards are equally bound you don't have any framework uh, outside of you know a, a fair play mechanism and the ga don't do fair play they do money and they do what suits them and that hasn't changed and again this is it's just back to the future stuff it's absolutely remarkable that this is even being discussed in in 2022 I, i'm just astonished
3: the um the solution does seem to be to get the county boards to pay for any extra sessions over the four it doesn't seem like it's that difficult to work out. It's just that we were talking about this a little bit earlier on. County board is notoriously cheap. Who's going to tell, who's going to make the the case that actually the players have done five sessions or six sessions? Is is the GPA representative automatically then accused of being treacherous, was the word that Owen used earlier on? Like, how how could you potentially police a limit in the number of sessions?
8: Well, you can't. It's never been possible. It's not possible within the current framework. And again, that's because of the amateur nature of the sport. Um, players will always want to perform at their zenith. So any athlete and anybody who's ever competed at any level in any sport will understand the desire that that burns in any individual, uh, male, female, uh, if they're at an elite level or thereabouts or trying to get to that level. Um, they're going to do everything they can, and they're certainly not going to listen, to listen to old boys in suits telling them you should only be training three days a week. That's complete and utter nonsense in the context of elite sport. So we need to give the players the best opportunity to put on their best performance, and, and that's um, and that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the appetite of the players to be the best they can be, and we're seeing you know the the old guys in suits doing what they always do, uh, trying to dictate something that that really makes no sense at all. And, uh, you know, it, it's um, maybe listen, may, maybe it's it's a slight failure in the GPS part that they haven't been taken seriously enough in negotiations to, to allow this to happen. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a party to that. But if I was in the GPS uh, seat, I, I would be acting uh, very, very aggressively against this because it needs to be put to bed and the GA need to be put back in their box, in my opinion.
4: Do you think it's viable for county boards to pick up the tab on the remaining expenses? Or does that just illustrate then the, the inequalities between different counties?
8: Well, I mean, I've always said that, you know, many, many county boards are completely uh, inept. They're run on a very amateur basis. I, I have had dealings with some of them directly. And it's, uh, it's something that has never been addressed. We put proposals to the g 20 plus years ago, how they might go about that. They were ignored. They've done nothing in the interim. So it's no surprise that county boards find themselves, you know, creaking at the seams. They always have and they always will do uh, in, in this type of framework that we see. Which really never never changes within the, uh, the context of the GA's macro structures, so that's not going to change. But this is not, you know, the, the county boards are units of the GAA. so it's for the GA and the county boards to sort this out. It's not for players to have to scramble for for petrol money and expenses. It, it's absolutely ridiculous in this day and age. So the GA need to get their house in order, and I think the GPA need to, you know, really respond very aggressively to make sure they do that. And this this is not an issue that ever comes back. Round the block again because, frankly, it's it's ridiculous.
3: What would you do, Donald, if you were if you were if they were to seek your counsel today? And uh, there's some talk of disrupting throw-in times at the weekends. What would you do to make sure that it doesn't happen again?
8: Well, the one the one strategy that um, we had in the back pocket and we never triggered it. And obviously, it's hypothetical to say whether it would have uh, the players would have fully complied or not. Um, but I would say, certainly, we're happy to play the matches, but turn the cameras off. You can have your radio coverage, but uh, please turn the cameras off, or we will not be taking the field. You need to hit the GA where it hurts, because nothing else works, and nothing has changed in 20 years. Clearly, so that would be my advice. Um, you know, to, to to go in very, very hard, because here we are, 20 years later, with the same old issues, and you know, the GA had a very successful year last year. You might say commercially. So I don't see how there is any rationale for penalising players, especially with the cost of living crisis that's, that's now emerged. I, I, I just I find it unfathomable that the GA could act in this manner at this point in time.
3: That's interesting. So it wasn't a strike as in we're not going to play the games. We're going to play the games. We're going to give everybody who attends the games the opportunity to see the game and we're going to give everybody the opportunity to experience the game uh, by listening to it. But the commercial contracts that you have around broadcast rights will be affected.
8: Mm-hmm. Correct. And... Each and every sponsorship that the GA engages in is, you know, directly connected and feeds off uh, those television pictures. So that was a mechanism that we identified to be very, very powerful. You wouldn't ostracize the, the fans. People could still listen to the game. They could still attend the game. But turn the cameras off, and now, of course, we've got additional sponsors and shirts. I mean, were the players consulted on any of that? I mean, they're they're billboards to an extent that they haven't been at any time in the past. So the train just keeps moving down that uh, you know commercial track, and the players seem to have stalled somewhere down the line. So th- that's what I see. And and you know, as I said at the outset, there it's back to the future stuff, and and it's not good enough.
4: There has been some form of, of protest in players not coming out to do post-match interviews on Saturday and Sunday at the weekend, but there are a couple of exceptions to it. Jack O'Connor, John Mohan and porrick Joyce, three of the managers who, who come to mind, who, who came out and, and did speak to the media. Does that damage the impact of the, the, the strike and the, the, the protest? in your opinion?
8: Well, if Porek Joyce had done it 20 years ago, yes but not today, he's a manager Uh, I mean, managers do what managers do and that's a a separate issue so I would say absolutely not I mean, this is a player issue and it's for for players to address and stand up and be counted if that's what the the GPA decides and I hope they do I I really hope they do
4: uh, what was really interesting yesterday is that uh, Pat Nolan from The Mirror tweeted a couple of pages from Desi Farrell's book and uh, just to try and uh, give, give a bit of context into uh, Port Joyce's comments because when he did speak he said that uh, he doesn't really care for, for, for the GPA those conversations are above his pay grade is, is, is essentially what he said when he, when he came out after the Galway game at the weekend and the context of this is uh, an incident which I had n- no idea of back in 2001 when uh, the GPA held their awards and Porrick Joyce was uh, due to get the award and then and late votes came in and, and Declan Meehan uh, became the footballer of the year uh, Michael Donnellan I understand picked up the award and then the award Meehan. was uh, Michael Donnellan picked up okay, the award I'm on sorry. Meehan's behalf okay, and then because uh, Meehan was in Boston and Joyce wasn't available in, in the first instance either and the award was sent back and I think was, were you the re- recipient of the award when when it was sent back or sorry yeah, the, the, the literal recipient uh, of it
8: it's a great pub quiz question. So that particular year, I, I had the, the trophy for the GPA player of the year, indeed, in my apartment in Dublin It was sent back to me by Declan. So I, I remember it well. But um, listen, I mean, the, the reality is, uh, Porek Joyce was a magnificent footballer, but he's not a footballer now. So this comes back to in my earlier point. This is an issue for the players of today. And I, I think managers, officials can sometimes get carried away with with their own profile um it's really got nothing to do with them desi's now obviously the Dublin manager which casts an interesting shadow on it but again you know even he's irrelevant this is a player issue and it's for players to resolve because it will keep coming back if they don't put it to bed once and for all
4: what what happened when you received the award that time well there's some suggestion in the book that it was it was dismantled or something
8: Yes, it was, it was, it came, it came in uh, I, I can I could still uh, see the box that came to my door and uh, I didn't know what it was. So this was obviously uh, pre-Amazon days and all of that, so it was quite unusual to get a uh, a big cardboard box in the post. Um, so yeah, it, it had been dismantled and uh, boxed up neatly and sent back to, to me in Dublin. Uh, we often joked about it afterwards. If the car had been up for grabs that year, it wouldn't have come back. But uh, there was only five hundred quid on the table of that particular year, so Opel weren't on the scene. Just- but yeah, I mean, listen, it was a, it was a, a huge administrative embarrassment for us at that time. You have to put your hands up and say that was a that was a big mistake. But you know, we were savagely under-resourced at that time and we were we were literally just, you know, d- doing our best and, and we were taking punches from uh, from all the corners at that point. But uh, definitely hands up, our mistake, um, fully understandable how uh, Joyce and Meehan reacted and uh, I'm sure many others would have done the same thing. But um, it's a long time ago now and, and I think, uh, you know, I think Porrig's comments on what's happening today are... Probably less relevant than, than they were um, back then, uh, because he, he's he's a manager, he's not a player, and I think that's that's paramount here. The players need to step forward and stand up, in my opinion. Uh,
4: was it not a, a state of the art mobile phone instead of a, a, instead of a car at the point? I think it was smart um, car phone warehouse where they, the commercial sponsors.
8: Yeah, there was 500 quid on a phone. So right. that, was the, that was what was on the table at that point. But, um, did that get sent I back as well? I an until 2002 before we had the car, obviously. So that uh, worked out okay for, uh,
4: for the lads up north. Did, did Declan send the, the phone back as well?
8: Um, I don't know if the phone had been delivered. Uh, car from where I was, I'm trying to remember the detail, probably would have just sent that directly, but uh, I didn't receive the phone. Um, and I, I didn't check whether it was it was uh, <laughs> it was used or not, but uh, the trophy came back neatly, neatly boxed up, and that was one of the, I suppose the the early incidents of the GPA when we didn't know whether we were going to get over the line or not. But uh, things changed very rapidly after that uh, in, in the following twelve months, and we identified the uh, the all stars as a target because we knew that um, we could inflict real commercial damage on the GA by starting our own. Uh, award program, sticking with it and trying to make it something uh, substantial, which which it went on to become the following year,
3: and then ultimately they ended up merging as as the as the merger and the the two organisations became very close in, in recent years. So this is a fracture in the relationship for the first time in a number of years. Really, uh, one last question for me: What did the GPA need to do, or do do they? Does it matter about keeping the the general population? And the general membership on side, or is that also irrelevant?
8: Well, no, I think it's, it's it's always relevant because if you if you step forward to to take action, you'd like to think that uh, there would be compliance. And again, you know, I'm I'm so far removed from it now; it's it's hard to know. But you were always aware back in the day that it, it, the amateur ethos of the sport um, filtered down to the player's response to some of the issues. And I'm not sure the psychology of that is interesting because in a professional sport, when the unions move, everybody moves. Um, We were never 100 percent sure that we had that level of support at any point. And you could probably question whether the GPA has that today. I don't know. But you wouldn't really find out until you, you stepped into the ring. But, you know, m- my move would be to, um, to strike out very, very firmly against the GA because they've proven that the Leopard doesn't change its spots. And the only thing that they understand, um, you know, to, to put it bluntly, is a good kicking.
3: All right, we're, we're going to put a request out to the GAA to come on and, and talk a little bit more about um, what their plan to try and resolve the impasse is. But for now, Donald O'Neill, thanks very much for joining us this morning. Cheers. Thanks, fellas. Uh, Donald O'Neill, giving us some thoughts and insight into um, the founding fires that the GPA came from.
4: Yeah, it's, it's interesting the the idea that um, a, a blackout, a television blackout on games was going to be their course of action in a, in a head-to-head uh, that seems like maybe the third step here if they do go and delay kickoffs, throw-ins delay throw-ins this weekend uh, will that be weekend three the final weekend of the league could that be the situation they reach or I wonder
3: yeah we'll wait and see what happens with this uh, I do have sympathy with the trying to get to a, a shared amount of expenses for each team or a salary cap a wage cap like a ultimately that will dictate the number of sessions and I, I appreciate Donald's point that players want to train as professionally as they can but whether or not you need collective sessions five times a week or six times a week, like, you probably can't have that and be amateur.
4: No, and I think that was actually Colin O'Rourke's point on Sunday night, wasn't it? That this is a move to semi-professionalism. And I would think that maybe the point came across as if he wasn't in support of what the GPA were after at all. Uh, but uh, like it isn't. Like it's...
3: Uh, no. They, that move to the semi-professionalism is gone.
4: Yeah, I guess he. I guess maybe what I'm not sure what he was trying to say, but what I took it up as maybe reading between the lines is that he feels that if you're training five times a week, you're essentially a semi-pro. Um, but I guess the definition of semi-professionalism is if you're getting paid a certain amount that allows you to half work and half not work, which this wouldn't be at all. Let it just be about limiting the amount of money that you're losing by playing Gaelic football or hurling.
3: Yeah, look, it's uh, uh, this is obvious. It, it it seems like it's about something else that this is a proxy war for something else and um, I I don't know will it get worse is there a possibility that we won't be able to watch games
4: well it just feels that there is uh, that this could have been solved quite easily and it hasn't been which would give me a little bit of cause for concern Uh, and and maybe they're just not on the the same page or maybe things just need to be explained a little bit clearer and, and everything will get sorted out but this shouldn't be in day five. Like, this is the fifth day of the
3: story, isn't it? So we shouldn't have got this far. Um, uh, <laughs> what's the definition of a session? Asks Brian. Just say session five is actually 4B, continuation of the fourth session and expense it. <laughs> That's a guy who could, I want do my accounts. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not your accounts, but certainly uh, at the negotiation table for this. And so we we'll left Session 4B and we we'll left Session 4C. And away you go, <laughs> lads. We'll just put that in a little separate column. Uh, twenty two this morning here. If you want to get in touch with this, we'd love to hear from you. Um, uh, right, so Neil, talking about our rugby coverage yesterday. Terrible being an England fan at the moment. The result was never in doubt after the card. Had things played out differently, Ireland would still have walked away winners. The scrum penalties were perplexing, and it looked like those decisions affected Ireland, but they pulled through convincingly, and as Plenty pointed out, England never looked like scoring. Complete shambles from England, the Sixth Nation performing worse than last year. Many believe England under Jones will come good at the World Cup. I think they're deluding themselves, and the RFU have put themselves in a the corner by giving Jones a blank cheque through to the World Cup. Whatever credit Jones had, he's running up a pretty steep overdraft at the moment, and many of us believe he's sold us a lemon. To the rugby now. I'm delighted to say Mike Ross is with us this morning to try and make some sense of what happened in the scrums. Mike, good morning to you. How you going on?
1: Not too bad. Well. How are you guys?
3: Yeah, good. Like, uh, on the face of it, there's been a big backlash from Ireland anyway about the nature of the scrum penalties, and Matthew Renault is being blamed for what happened. Do we need to look at ourselves first, though, and stop blaming the referee, and and maybe try and understand what we could have done differently in this scenario? Because let's let's say we were to be refereed like that in a World Cup quarter final, or you know, we can dream a semi final. Come on, afterwards, blaming the referee is well and good, but you're out of the tournament.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I was at the game on Saturday. I was kind of in the south stand, so it was kind of difficult for me to see what was going on. But afterwards, I went went through them a few times and I had a look and. Look, there's definitely stuff we could have done better. You know, A couple of times they were losing the engage and taking a step back and readjusting, which helped England do what they wanted. But at the same time, you know, England were creating a kind of a, a shear, like shearing off scenario. So again, just kind of chasing up on the loose head side and then Sinclair was coming across to try and create three and two and shear off to the side. And if, if a ref referee is quite hard to stop. I mean, there's a couple of things you can do about it. But they're, they're, you know, it's, it's not guaranteed. So, yeah, look at a combination of, like, we can probably be better in our, in our uh setup and engagement. Um, but there's also, you know, an element of, the, you know, the referee needs to um, do his job.
4: Yeah, can you explain that um, England move? So, so, essentially, Genge goes in first and it it, it takes out so, the hook so, so, yeah, completely, is so, it?
1: No, so Genge that <clears throat> chases hard up and he kind of, actually, not really directly against Furlong, he kind of goes almost on his outside. And then that creates a pivot in the scrum, and then a, a singular attack attacks the the joint as a result. Right. So, if the go, scrum goes like this, they try and break off. Um, so, kind of pivoting around Furlong and hopefully squaring up, then and then they march up the field. I mean, if you, if you if you think back to last year, Ireland did something similar. You know, where England attacked and then Ireland kept their shape and drove straight through.
4: Is there anything that you can do if you're tied Furlong in that position?
1: Couple of things, but you know they're not guaranteed successful. One, you can start crabbing to the right to counteract the rotation that's coming against you. So the the whole thing starts going going like going right or right across the pitch to the right. Another thing is to maybe start angling in yourself, and then you know stay square. Don't allow yourself to be taken by the rotation. And but you have to really angle across, and then they will break off. Then, but then you've stayed where you are, and it looks you're know, basically two packs marching up against the field. In opposite directions but you know the, those are both you know hard to do
3: and risky enough I suspect in that the referee looks for who's going forwards and yeah. it kind of referees on momentum as opposed to the technicalities of it
1: yeah which is generally what the French referees do they will the moment, if someone looks like they're going forward they're going to give them benefit of the doubt.
3: okay Let's say we, could, we had a, a magic rewind button and we knew what England were going to do and we're sitting in, in the um, coach's room in advance of the game. What are you saying to the Ireland team about like, is, it, is it more in early engagement with the referee? Because Furlong did try a little bit of it across the course of the match and it didn't seem to have that much of an impact on Reynaud. How, how do you influence the referee to get a better outcome and how do you actually influence then what England well, are
1: doing? Usually, you supply footage to the referee prior to the game of things you're concerned about. No, you know, that doesn't exist in this scenario. Or you can verbally tell them, "Hey, look, you know, we're, we, want fair, we want a fair contest. We want to scrum in square and straight, and we don't want to be dancing around." Um, but yeah, it, it is difficult. It, like, ultimately, is the referee's going to decide how he's going to interpret things, and there's only so much you can do about that. But like, potentially, I'd like to see us cheat a little bit more, you know. Um, sometimes you have to, you know, make make your own, make your own decisions, um, and not be so. If you look at Ireland historically, we've kind of had a very square and straight scrum, and um, I haven't haven't exactly. I don't think I've ever seen Irish back do what England did at the weekend. So I, w- I don't see why I shouldn't start doing it if it's going to be rewarded. Why shouldn't we do it? Uh, and like that,
4: that's interesting, especially in the context of the two props being. Pretty experienced for Ireland at the moment, so it's not something that they've they've ever engaged in in really. If they didn't resort to it on Saturday,
1: yeah. Well, with like it's not really how how this Irish scrum coach, coach, You know, John fogarty has been doing a pretty good job up until now. Um, and if you, if you look at how Ireland scrum is, square, it's straight. They try and dip all dip and push at the same time uh, in the same direction. Uh, I've scrummed. I've scrum in England for number of years early in, my, early in my career and the scrum is seen as like it's free for all you, you know the, one world of the scrum just go forward don't matter how
4: Right so that that, that, that kind of is a nice petri dish of uh, I guess bending the rules to, to whatever meets your strengths
1: Yeah well the, if you're getting away with it you're getting penalties you know if I was in England's position I'd have done exactly the same thing and I kept going to where I was getting penalties because I was giving them entries into the game it was giving them points it was giving them strength and momentum so, and if the referee's not refereeing it then by all means keep doing it
3: Do you think there's a possibility that we didn't get a yellow card because Reynaud didn't quite know what he was giving the penalties for? That that Like Eddie Jones afterwards is complaining you know, I mean that's, uh, that's not exactly a surprise but that the referee's like I'm going to just give this penalty here but I don't really know I mean I've had a word with them. I'm not really convinced myself
1: Yeah well there was not one specific offender was there? You know I mean it penalised for, well, in Raynaud's man, going backwards. So, I mean, there's no one falling to the floor. There's no one, you know, standing up. It was just kind of slewing around and a bit of a merry-go-round, really. And Raynaud just decided that it was one or the other's fault.
3: One of the other things that uh, became a big talking point in advance of the last World Cup when Devin Toner was dropped was the tight head lock. Um, is that something that we should all be having a conversation again about this week is there anything in our back row or sorry in our second row that could have helped prevent like was tied for along a long bit of an island
1: well look your tight headlock is very important uh, to your scrum okay and look we lost James Ryan early on which didn't help Andy, um, H- H- Andy does play there quite a bit and he's pretty good but you know um, James is you know a fairly key component of that scrum and if you look at the loose head lock, like Tyg Byrne, he's he's um he's more of a jumping lock or a six, you know. So he's not like we don't have a Paul Williams in the pack, you know, who's a bit of a tractor when it comes to the scrum. We don't have like I think the last kind of scrum machine, second row scrum machine lock like that would be Quinn Roux, who's uh who, you know is over in France at the moment. So yeah, you know, we don't, we don't have we have we play a quick, mobile game, and our our pack makeup reflects that
3: is there anything you can do? Is there anybody, like, could we, should we be trying to turn Ryan Baird for the benefit of his long-term future into that or? or I don't
1: know. I don't don't know how how we experiment. So, look, there's a smart brains trust in in the Irish uh, coaching unit. So I'm sure they'll be looking at all the different options. Uh, Like, I think that the, like the one big, um, if you look through the provinces, you probably have someone like Klein who would be, who would fit the bill. But does he does he do be able to deliver the rest of the bits and pieces that this Irish team wants I don't know
4: so how does this coaching team go about uh, I guess fulfilling your wish there of wanting to see Ireland cheat a little bit more
1: Just I I don't know I don't know if, I don't know if they're gonna do it like there's no point just throwing the baby out with the bathwater here right mm. so we've had up until now we've had like even even on Saturday our scrum of success is 100 percent you know. Um, and it's, it's the first time I've seen us troubled in a long time, so I'm not going to hit the panic button and just kind of reset everything that we're doing, but you know, per- perhaps, you know, start start gaming into it a few more scenarios you know? I mean, every week of training there's two up-packs going at each other, so we can start almost like war-gaming you know, different scenarios that you see coming up against, and I'm sure that this week they'll be looking at that because, you know, Scotland will have been watching that and go, right, we're going to try this see if it works, it might never work again, you know. I mean, referee might might never get a referee who permits.
4: Yeah, and like I guess when, when you talk about war gaming, I mean, once the Six Nations is done. They're going to zoom out, they're going to look at the summer, they're going to look at South Africa coming along this autumn. They're probably going to look back at a couple of the instances during this year's Six Nations and France and England in particular. So you've got South Africa, you've got France, you've got New Zealand as potential teams who are going to either be the avenue to dreams coming true for Irish rugby players at the World Cup or the ones that are going to kill the dreams at the end of next year. So is there any commonality when you look at those three opponents in particular that Ireland can be targeting and saying, listen, we need to get better at X or Y?
1: Uh, with, with, with the Southern Hemisphere games. Huh? Yeah, so, yeah. A, the
4: teams we play this year, I guess, later on.
1: Well, South so Africa probably have the biggest threat mm. in the scrum. Uh, if, if you look at what they did to England in the final couple of years ago, you know, they have, and, you know, even the Lions during the year, they have some excellent props. So, they're probably going to be the main threat scrummage-wise. Um, New Zealand, they're, they're actually a bit, you know, they're, they're, they're from pretty much like Ireland. They don't really look... For um, New Zealand, tend to play off their scrum a bit more, right? Ireland will try and tackle the scrum a bit more, but New Zealand do tend to play off it. And Australia, um, I haven't watched them for a while actually, so I'm not quite sure how how good their scrum is. But they're always up or down, you know. they're I often see the Australian scrum getting written off, and then it delivers a great performance, and then the following week it gets rinsed. So it's a uh, but of all those three, South going to be definitely the ones I worry about
3: the most. Just in terms of strength and depth, like the the general consensus afterwards was that, whoa, that front row is going to, um, like, Keane Healy might not be at this level anymore. But that doesn't seem to be what you're saying at all. If the referee had refereed that properly at the weekend, then we wouldn't actually be worried about the strength and depth in the scrum. So do we need to maybe take that? one-off as a one-off and make sure that we're prepared for the next time that happens to cheat back or to influence the referee in a way what's the truth about our strength and depth?
1: I, look I I, th- I think it can our strength and depth can be better you know um, we, we've we we developed Porter into a you know pretty much going up there to be one of the into the world class category at Tidehead, and then we moved him back because we wanted you know himself and tight on the pitch at the same time so you know, we, we need to figure out succession planning there. So we've, we've got Finley Bealum there. Um Tom O'Toole's kind of, I think he's injured at the moment, is he? And, uh, then, you know, so we've, as Lou said, with Porter and Kean you know, who's, I think he's got a few more years left in him. Uh, as, as you said, I don't think, you know, one, one tough decision game suddenly means he's finished. You know, it's, uh, I I still back him. I thought, was, yeah, aside from the scrum penalty decisions, I thought he had a decent game around the pitch. I remember, I remember him chasing down the scrum half at the back of them all during the game. Uh, he's still quite mobile and he's like, he's, he's as strong as ever. Uh, below that, you know, it's, it's become the, you know, there's a few cabs queuing up. in you know, any Dave Still point. obviously is on the bench this weekend. You got Ed Byrne. Um, at, at, Lou said, there, there needs to be kind of clear, you know, second or third choice emerging. Uh, and you know, there's a few guys putting their hands up at the moment. But none, of, none of them have really got there yet. Uh, at, at tight head you know, below Tom O'Toole, I mean, you still have Mark Moore knocking around the Ulster. Uh, you've got Keenan Knox down in, down in Munster. So there needs to be, again, there needs to be an emergence of, yeah, you know, this this guy's going to be a fair choice for us.
3: Yeah, it's difficult to do because you can't really just pick somebody and work on them or can you? Is that, the, is that the right way to do that? It's like, okay, you're you're our number three guy and so you're going to get more time. We're going to influence your local coaching ticket and we're going to bring you into the Ireland squad and, and that's it.
1: Yeah, look, you, you've seen that they, they bring bring guys in uh, into the training squad so they get an exposure and they get a taste for what it's for. But uh, the, what the, all those guys really need is just con- consistent game time for their provinces. You know, so to, you know, to really kind of drive drive the competition, uh, you know. So, so at the interpros, they get a chance to put their hands up and see who's going to, you know, get get picked. But a lot of those guys are young, so we've got a lot of nice young crop coming up. But they need to, um, you know, really put their hands up and start putting pressure on the guys above them.
3: All right, Mike, great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Cheers. Yes, thank you. It's Mike Ross giving us some insight into uh, what we need to do to um, fight back the next time it happens to us. Yeah, or come with a a dark, dark
4: game plan. The the only way Ireland are going to go far in this World Cup is by being uh, hated.
3: In our pre-match, in our pre-match, our pre-show meeting, uh, Joseph was talking about Andy Lee one time, saying that if um, if you get a low blow or a headbutt early in a fight, the only thing you can do is punch punch back in the balls or headbutt back, because that way the message <laughs> is sent: we ain't taking this. Yeah, that's over.
4: So cheat back. It does seem, obviously, when somebody gets, especially when he, when he's talking uh, about that first technique that the English scrum were using at the weekend, that that's a very, very hard thing to combat. I suppose the next scrum is your opportunity as opposed to within yeah. that one scrum. Yeah, or, or
3: to like, excuse me, sir, I hope you realise what they're doing here. I mean, I know you're such a beautiful, educated, you've got such a giant rugby brain, sir, that you can see that this front row is cheating, sir. Yes? <laughs> en français? Tu peux, tu peux le faire en français? Maybe that's it. Je peux pas maybe that's it maybe maybe uh no maybe
4: uh they they need to learn french between now and then but that's i guess if you're coming up against a French team... Sexton should have enough from his yeah. year in Paris, no? He should do. Two years? Um, yeah, but I'm just thinking, I guess, if, they're, if, they're, if you come up against France next year
3: with uh, French referees, obviously something's wrong. And uh, that, w- that would be a grave injustice. <laughs> I mean, look, stranger things have happened. Uh, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Time for the papers.
5: There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. I think he's a total
2: spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a (laughs) bullsh**. Ah, no, Eamon, come on, don't be, don't be, no, I'm not
3: that, no. Right, we're going to start with uh, otbsports.com. No, we don't have, oh yeah, we do, yeah. Um, So the football pod is out for you this morning. Uh, Money problems, jacks are back and Kerry Mayo oh, Tommy's stealing my Jackson backline wrestling legend Scott Hall aka Razor Raymond dies aged 63 did I get the Razor Ramon I don't know yeah there's no God given right at the top Pat Nevin on Chelsea's future and Roman Abramovich is actually in the front of the UK paper a picture of him reading on the flight yeah in the VIP lounge in an airport in Israel on his way to Istanbul there's a couple of pictures of him. I wonder who was taking the photographs and what level of security there was around it. I'm sure he's not very happy about the fact. But he is on the front of every... Uh, of the English papers this morning as the, the club is up for sale. US-British bid leads Race. That's uh, on the back of the London Times. Uh, Reunited Reds plan to bring the dream team of Kane and Pochettino to Old Trafford in the summer. City aren't much cop. That's after the Noel draw yesterday. And Cheltenham is here. So lots of talk about that. Um... Uh, the sweetest thing Ruby Walsh Honeysuckle will want to do what she always does so you've got to tune in to watch Honeysuckle today because if she gets beaten you're going to miss it and if she wins you're going to miss it um, uh, that is all basically in the examiner uh, front and back is Cheltenham uh, United could demolish Old Trafford in rebuild plan this is a story from the Telegraph uh, it's carried on the back of the Independent this morning and GA cannot continue to fund bad practice with regard to player welfare says Tom Ryan There's really interesting details actually from Kieran Shannon and his piece, which I think explains why there's so much pissed offness. It's not the four training sessions was like the line in the sand for the GAA. They wanted three training sessions. That's what they wanted to pay for. What alarmed the GPA, this is Kieran Shannon's piece, what alarmed the GPA is that for a few months, the GAA wanted to continue with just 50 cent a mile, flat rate, and the number of collective sessions a week would be capped at three and the number of players per panel will be limited to 32. So that's not quite the same as oh we accept your we accept your uh four sessions a week is uh is what the ESRI want. It's like ah oh, the SRI report is a handy piece of evidence for us to stop 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 the runaway train of expenses on teams. And the difficulty is that obviously um they've spoken before about the runaway train uh of expenses. So there has to be a solution where the rich counties subsidize the poor counties, and an agreed amount is given to everybody and you manage that and any any shortfall is not picked up by the players but is picked up by the county board mm. and that's that's written into the charter but uh, there might
4: need to be a bit of give on the g p a side about the welfare aspect of things about you know uh you know some sort of commitment to honoring the less than four sessions a week idea.
3: As in, they'll report. They'll self-report. Yeah,
4: that might be the way the negotiations get. Maybe, but it's hard. To, it's isn't it hard to ask players to self-report when the manager's going to drop you if you report? And as Donald O'Neill said earlier on, everybody wants to get to the zenith.
3: Um, last month, the GA reported a surplus of thirteen and a half million for the twenty twenty one financial year on the back of government support. What's the difference between this, the government support, and the furlough that Liverpool were getting? Grief overtaken you made a lot of money you took a lot of money from the government you've, you've added it to your coffers what's the difference?
4: There, there is no real difference obviously the perception is that it's different because one is a professional organisation one isn't supposed to be a professional organisation but the GEA is very much a professional organisation outside of the players that, that play the game um,
3: Saudi you like that is the back page of the Sun and it's uh, Chelsea received a bid from a Saudi Arabian group for 2.7 billion and Emmerich Laporte missed last night Uh, race against time potential Chelsea owners rush to meet deadline for offers United look at Old Trafford demolition different picture of Roman Abramovich on the front of the paper in the Telegraph and um, yeah so anyway look uh, Carl Malani is with us at 8.43 this morning Carl, with the Sporties Good morning to you Morning lads, how are you? The um, players finished up being a mammoth tournament Maybe a <laughs> six day golf tournament is the way forward Yeah, a lot of people said yes So why don't they finish every tournament on a Monday When we can all watch it And it's
7: kind of the only thing that's on um, Yeah, In fairness to the organisers, fair play to them for getting it finished before Tuesday because it would have run into this week's tournament then and caused trouble. I think the Valspar Championship is starting on Thursday. It's in the General Florida area as well. Um, But yeah, it was a bit of a disaster and probably took from the tournament in terms of the flow of it and and the traditional Sunday finish and all of that. But Cameron Smith ended up winning it by a shot uh, on 13-under. Shane Lowry's final round challenge didn't really materialise at all. A couple of bogeys in the front nine. He got it together around the turn and and ended up in a tie for 13th on 6-under. So a pretty decent week all round. Um, Rory McIlroy, despite his struggles in the first three rounds, had a really good closing round of 66 uh, to end on 3-under alongside Seamus Power as well. So... An important week for Seamus Perry. He's back inside the top 50 now, um, which he's going to be keeping an eye on over the next couple of weeks. If he can be there at the end of the month, he'll get into the Masters in a month's time. So key couple of weeks coming up for him. Um, but yeah, good tournament. Uh, 3.6 million, I think, for the winner. It's yeah, not bad. isn't bad. Uh, okay, he's got a million for finishing second. Yeah, and I think you could finish as low as somewhere inside the top 40, 36 or something like that. You still get 100 grand or something like that. So... Um, you know. Cover
3: your expenses anyway Wouldn't it Yeah, yeah. Given everything that's it in the news It trained five times a week That week Yeah um, But yeah It was, it was uh, The weather didn't help things at all I mean you say that But it did actually make it A much better TV spectacle Right <sighs> Apart well. from the fact That the best golfers in the world Weren't winning So it was too much of a Yeah of a I
7: week. guess from a scheduling point of view In terms of TV coverage It wasn't ideal But yeah It, it was a little bit softer So for example a couple of weeks ago, Bay Hill, when the conditions were so tough, it was kind of bogey golf and par golf. That was was getting guys up the field. Whereas now, at Sawgrass, it was it was birdies. And probably Shane Lowry wouldn't have had his hole in one uh, if the conditions were that little bit firmer, and he wasn't able to get the backspin on the ball to get the hole in one on the 17. But that was a cracking moment, uh, great moment for him. I think he's just the 10th ever on that on that particular hole. And it's just it's like one of the most iconic holes in the world as well. What does Seamus power need to do? in the top 50 by the end of the month. So what does that mean in In practice? Well, basically, he needs to have a couple of decent finishes. I think he's going to take a little bit of a break because he has an elbow injury uh, that he needs to rest. Now, he says, I think, that he's not overly concerned about it and not thinking about it too much. But I think, you know, as any sports person, when a big event is coming up that's so iconic as the Masters is, I think it will be playing on his mind that he makes sure he gets into that tournament. And probably, I know you don't deserve anything in sport, but if Seamus Power doesn't deserve it i'm not sure who does because he's had such a good run of form to get himself you know up into that upper echelon on the tour he's done it the hard way Uh, so let's hope he can stay inside that top 50 but uh, he does he needs just to keep playing a little bit uh, stay consistent Um, his form has deserted him in recent weeks a little bit but uh, if he can keep consistent now over the next couple of weeks uh, let's hope that it happens um, so that's to look forward to in the Masters, just a month away. So let's uh, let's hope it's a decent tournament. And Rory probably showed a little bit of form again on Sunday
3: to give give us a little bit of hope. I mean, you know, it's great that it would be great if you could just stick the four days together yeah. that's, all we, that's yeah, all we want yeah yeah. so let's see um, but elsewhere in
7: sporting news uh, Pep Guardiola felt his Manchester City players couldn't have given any more as they were held to a goal of straw by Crystal Palace last night the result means they're now four points clear of Liverpool at the top of the Premier League though Liverpool do have a game in hand here at home last night Shamrock Rovers held to a goal of straw by Dundalk that was in the SSE Artricity League Premier Division that leaves the champions in fourth two points adrift of the leader St. Pat's they beat UCD last night by two goals to nil. Aidan Keene scored a hat-trick for Sligo Rovers to help them move up to second. They were 3-1 winners at home to Finn Harps. Bohemians and Shelburne finished one all at Dalyman Park and then Derry City beat Drogheda United by two goals to nil. Uh, In the first division Cork City beat Waterford last night by two goals to nil. Galway were 2-1 winners against Treaty United. Bray collected their first points with a 2-1 win at Longford and Cove were 3-2 winners away to Athlone. In the Scottish Cup last night, Celtic booked their place in the last four 3-0 winners away to Dundee United and they will play Rangers in the semi finals. Manchester United's Champions League last 16 tie with Atletico Madrid is level at a goal apiece. That's ahead of tonight's second leg at Old Trafford. Kickoff for that one is at 8. Ajax and Benfica also in action uh, this evening. They're at 2 all after their first leg three weeks ago. The racing, of course, the Cheltenham Festival begins later today. Crowds set to return to Cheltenham. The feature on day one is the Champion Hurdle. That goes to post at half past 3. Honeysuckle and Rachel Blackmore, favourite to land the honours for the second year in succession. The first of seven races today is off at half past one. There are four great ones on the card, starting with the Supreme Novices Hurdle. We mentioned the golf already as well just to finish. Cameron Smith carded a final round of 6-under par 66 to capture the Players' Championship last night. He ended on 13 overall. That was one shot clear of Anirban Lahiri in second. Shane Lowry ended on 6-under. Rory McIlroy and Seamus Power were three shots further back. 3.6
3: 3.6 million, of course, for him. Yeah. Good stuff. Carl, thanks very much for that. That's exactly. Carl Mlani with you there. You can uh, catch his morning brief on the OTB podcast network. Just subscribe to our highlights feed. And, uh, of course, you can read some more from him across the day on otbsports.com. A reminder, the show is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. So we should go back to the power rankings very briefly. And Patrick says, uh, sorry, I missed that one. By Jesus, if you had the head of Offaly, I was switching off, says John. A lot of pressure there, Owen. And Aina, a good Galway name, says, How are Galway ninth? Five games, five wins, and ninth. If Galway play Mayo in the morning, there's one or two points in it, but they are second, we beat Kildare for sure, he says. But I'd say that that's, that's obviously the key point. Like,
4: if any of that top eight play Mayo in the morning, I would suggest that there will be one or two points in it. Um like I mean the only team that Mayo have beaten comfortably this year are Dublin and I think we've got to the stage already where we can write off that early season Dublin form as a little bit excessive in its grimness. So I think that they're not five points worse than Mayo at this point it is one or two points. So uh, give me another team who who wouldn't get within a couple of points of of uh, Mayo is my point and I just don't think that Kildare have done enough wrong for them to be dropped below Galway. I did consider it for sure. But I guess Kildare, a couple of weeks after beating Dublin, to have them down outside the top eight would have been particularly harsh. Maybe next week, though. It'll be ancient history come come next week. We'll see. If Kildare can, can take a battering, that'll help me out. Yeah, but the, I don't think they're going to take a battering from anybody. No, they're not. The the one thing I would say about Kildare is that there are a few of... The uh, problems from the 2009 2010 year were starting to creep up a little bit in terms of uh, wides shot selection. Like I think they did uh, ten wides at the weekend. I think they had three very good goal chances. Now, in interesting Darren Kerwin was back at the weekend. to came off the bench, came on for for Paddy Woodgate. So all of a sudden, himself. Uh, Jimmy Goals, can we call him Jimmy Goals? Is that a thing? No, uh, J- Jimmy Highland. Uh, that, that did not get a good response from Jared there. And, um, and Daniel Flynn, that's a pretty good full forward line. So that's one way of remedying uh, your uh, lack of uh, good shot selection is to have a very, very good full forward line. Uh, it doesn't mean everything. Like, I mean, Mayo, uh, for example, on Saturday night, I think struggled to get the ball into the right people's hands late in the game. It was Lee Keegan, obviously, who took that shot late in the game. Um, I didn't ask you about the matchups. Yeah, so this is interesting. So, like, just on on Mayo, like, I do think, and this is a wider point rather than just on the point of of Saturday, like, is Oshin Mullen marking David Clifford a complete waste. Did he mark him for the whole game? Not the whole game, but the majority of it. And who switched in? O'Hara. Right. Wouldn't that be much better? I think so. I think O'Hara would actually relish the chance yeah. of going 80 minutes with Clifford for the full
3: yeah. thing. But then you get O'Shea Mullen
4: as a creator as well. Yeah, I, th- I actually think it'd be interesting if O'Shea was available to have put Mullen on O'Shea, see if he can push him back the other way. Yeah. The only thing is, Mayor flush with, with half-backs, as we know. Uh, like Obviously it was Keegan who came up with that that that, that late effort and then you had uh, Paddy Durkin in the team as well. Or put Keegan put
3: Keegan on Clifford
4: Yeah now obviously there are the ghosts of 2019 that hauled uh, Mayo people and the idea of Lee Keegan as a full back I suspect given he got roasted by Conor Callaghan that day but I, I would say that maybe Podjoz Góhara is your central defender and maybe Keegan has that buffer of your full back to his right or to his left I just think uh, with Oshin Mullen and, and his particular set of talents I think having him mark David Clifford was a bit of a waste Clifford played well and maybe Mullen kept stopped him from exploding on the night, but I think that you're you've got to accept that this guy's going to score a few points.
3: You've got to think what what can we do to hurt you? Yeah. Anything less than six is break even. Yeah. Anything between six and ten you're doing okay. Yeah. Anything over ten you got roasted. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably fair enough. Right. We'll come back to the throne issue a little bit later on. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. It is time for us to turn our attention to tonight's Champions League action and just the general state of Manchester United at the moment. And I'm delighted to say Samuel Luckhurst is back with us. Samuel good morning to you how are you getting on?
6: Good morning, very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on again.
3: A nice quiet time in the Manchester United beat where Ronaldo's hip flexor is the biggest story in world football and he comes back and scores a hat-trick and then today it turns out that they're thinking about knocking down the stadium and then there's the small matter of the Champions League game against Atletico Madrid. Do you ever sleep, I wonder?
6: Well, it's been nice in a way that Chelsea have dominated the the news cycle, but obviously for for ourselves, it it's it's never quiet. It's it's pretty much like New York, really. It's it's like the club that never sleeps. There's always something going on with with Ronaldo. I think it was maybe overstated. I think people just saw the name and saw the issue and saw the result against City and wanted to run with that. It was it was interesting that there was no context provided that he he missed two games in in January. Against Aston Villa with a hip flexor, He's since turned thirty-seven. Um, if, if you've got a problem with your hip at that age, it's 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 bound to you know it's bound to take its toll. Uh, but the way he came back at the weekend was was pretty spectacular. But uh, I was quite taken aback by how by, by the sheer lack of gratitude that, that Rangit showed for Ronaldo, which kind of uh, confirms or certainly tallies with what a lot of us have been told and have written about Rangit having reservations about Ronaldo's role going into next season. And then, of course, the, the stadium story that was, was done by a couple of colleagues. Um, United downplayed that rather consciously. Um, th- th- there seems to be a, a new attempt by United to try and downplay anything that gets written about them at the moment, which I don't think is necessarily the right, the right tactic or the way, uh, the way to go with it. But Old Trafford, if anyone's been there in, in the last, well, probably the last 10 years, it's, it's a decrepit stadium. It's been neglected. It's not been expanded once since the Glazer family took ownership of it. The quadrants were installed in 2006, after the a year after the Glazers uh, completed their takeover. But that that planning permission was given, I think, in, in 2004. So that was about a year before the Glazers took over the club. And and Joel Glazer, whose name appears in the programme every week or every other week, as co-chairman. Has not been at Old Trafford uh, for almost three years, and of course, we've Tom Brady uh, in the director's box at the weekend, and he's still with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I think he's attended as many games at Old Trafford in the last two and a half years as the six Glacier siblings have combined.
3: <laughs> I was going to ask because it, it so the the NFL media that I cover that I um, follow covered that appearance of Brady as like some kind of personal plea from him to the Glazers I kind of just assumed that that meant somebody was there somebody was actually meeting him and that was kind of a where the because he announced that he was coming back after like late late night our time but after the game yeah um I had assumed that he'd met somebody at the ground to kind of finally confirm something or but or it it was just a it was just a jolly there was nobody there. There were no officials from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or the glazers at the club. It seems now
6: as far as I could tell there, there weren't um he he tweeted his his thanks to the glazer family I think a few hours before he, he announced that he hadn't retired. But it's it's not a surprise not to see a Glazer at Old Trafford. I think the only time my, any of them have been there this season was Abraham Glazer for Ronaldo's uh, second debut, unsurprisingly. Uh, as I said, I don't think Joel Glazer has been at Old Trafford or been to a United game full stop since the Champions League quarterfinal at home to Barcelona in 2019. That was in, in April, so that is almost three years ago. The, the other siblings, you, you just don't. Some of them have literally never ever been to Manchester. I think in the early days, Brian Glazer um, went to a few games, but I, I, I mean, it must have been maybe ten years since he was last at a United game. It's it's mainly Avram Glazer and Joel Glazer who are, are the face of um, the, the family's ownership, if you like. Yet they very very rarely uh, fly over to Manchester, and you know, with with the uh, the glitterati that are in the directors' box, United have not been quite as um, enthusiastic about that in recent months since the, the UFC wrestler rather crassly decided to video Sir Alex Ferguson saying what a bad decision it was to drop Cristiano Ronaldo against Everton back in October. So it, even when they, you know, glad hand these these famous faces or in some case unfamous faces, um, it, it can go wrong for United.
3: Okay, that that is interesting. I didn't realise that. The, um, the story about knocking down Old Trafford, right? I mean, obviously, we, we see how most of these big tickets items work. A, a kite gets flown in public, a story gets published, and then you see what the public response is going to be. Will Manchester United fans have a massive backlash against the notion that we could have a new stadium here? We could actually, one of the plans is to have two stadiums, a big one for the the, um, the men's team and a smaller one for... Uh, youth cup games and for the women's team it sounds like a really excellent plan and a good use of their resources and it's forward thinking is there so much emotional attachment to the specifics of the stadium as it stands now that that idea might not fly with the fans
6: i wouldn't necessarily say so because i think the fans have just got fed up and and tired with the the state of the stadium The, the stadium is an embarrassment um when when Certain players, esteemed players, go there for the first time. They they might tweet about what, how wonderful it is to be there. I remember Dybala did that a few seasons ago because he'd never played there and he scored for Juventus. And there is still prestige of playing at Old Trafford. Um, you know, people still use the, the nickname "the Theatre of Dreams." It's not to my taste, but it's it certainly you know it's, it kind of chimes with the romance of football. But you're lucky if you go there these days and you see that the paintwork has been updated. Uh, The roof in the South Stand, where we sit in the press box, has been notorious for for leaking. I mean, some of this is really easy at times. You talk about the leaks from the dressing room, the leaks from the roof, and it all comes together. Uh, The the most infamous one being, uh, I think, a couple of years ago, just before the Derby. But that wasn't in the South Stand. That was in the Stretford. then. It was like a... Uh, it was was just like a waterfall that was gushing down from the roof and I think it was referred to on the fans forum but even on that they actually referred to the wrong roof Um, they were going on about the south stand because they just assumed it's always the south stand that leaks but it wasn't it was the Stretford Ends roof so as emotionally attached and as wonderful as it is still walking through Old Trafford which is one of those few stadiums I suppose where you still feel the history of it you see the Munich clock outside you go through the Munich tunnel which is um, is a very dignified tribute to, to the Munich air disaster in 1958. And, and you see the Samat Busby statue, the Trinity statue, uh, Ferguson's got a statue as well. It, it is, you know, you can't help but be impressed by aspects of that, but you go inside it and compared to Tottenham Stadium, uh it's 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 shameful really. And it's not just Tottenham Stadium, we haven't been to Atletico Madrid Stadium again a few weeks ago. That's far superior than United's. They've been left behind. Liverpool have an impressive newsstand. Arsenal Stadium, it's, it's starting to look a little bit dated, but it's still a lot more um a lot more recent than, than old Trafford. Um, Manchester City, I suppose, is the most galling example. What they've done there in that region, and that it's an Edison goal, an Edison goal kick away from the Etihad. You've got the CFA where the academy and the women's team play, whereas United's women's team and academy, uh, also their junior teams still have to play at Lee Sports Village, where access to it is, you have to get there by car, really. There's no, the tram doesn't go that far. There's not a nearby railway station. So it's pretty embarrassing that they still have to pretty much go to a rugby town to play uh, junior football or or women's football.
3: So all of this is actually fixable and and might be the type of thing that would get fans on side if they were to maintain the, the bits that you've spoken about, which I presume they will, and then say this is going to be the the shiny new edifice of the stadium. Uh, Is there any sense yet? There's stories in the back of the paper today linking Pochettino and Harry Kane. Is there any sense that we're rounding out the short list of candidates that uh, everybody who wants to put their hat in the ring for the job has put their hat in the ring for the job? Or are they going to wait until the summer and see who's actually available?
6: At this stage, I'd still be amazed if it, Is anyone other than Pochettino or or Ten Hag? Uh, Pochettino seems eminently attainable, especially given the result that PSG had last week. He he wants to be in England. He wants to manage United. Uh, That's been the case for a a long, long time now. Um, PSG, you you hear the sounds coming out from there. It doesn't seem like it's it's, it's going to extend into next season. It seems like everybody would be very surprised if Pochettino is still at. At PSG, apparently, still lives in a hotel in Paris as well. Which, you know, from from experience covering United with Jose Mourinho, that that is just yeah. You know, I mean, it's short termism. Just looking at it from the outside, but from the inside, it's it's not particularly appreciated. I think with Pochettino, the problem he had was that he waited such a long time, and yeah, United, United did approach him informally at one point um, during those thirteen months he was out of work. They didn't go far enough. By the time that PSG had sacked Thomas Tuchel. I think he'd been, he'd been out of work for 13 months. He was impatient. He was ready to get back into it. When he left Tottenham, there were one of three clubs he was going to go to. The other two possibilities would have been Real Madrid and, and United. It was either going to be those two or PSG. He ended up at PSG. It's not really working out. I think the fact that he's he's ended his trophy drought is, is rather insignificant even if they win Liga this season. I don't think anybody's going to bat an eyelid about that. But Ultimately, United needs someone who's going to be credible enough to to compete with Jürgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola, and, and with Pochettino, it is just about believable. Even though his aura as a coach has has maybe been diminishing in the last uh, three or four years, I certainly think that that Tottenham team that he had probably peaked in 2017. So you're looking at as part of three years before he actually was sacked by Daniel Levy, but he's just more suitable uh, for me, for United that he's got Premier League experience he wants that job I think with Ten Hag there's a hell of a lot more risk people in Holland have always expected that he would move to Germany first and uh, coach a club there before possibly moving on to England the, the, the prospects of him going to United where there is a rebuild job required in the summer where you might not have Champions League football Next season, having done what he's done at Ajax, I just think is too steep. He, he has assembled two very good Ajax teams, but you look at those Ajax teams, both of them, one the pivotal players in them, or some of the pivotal players, are Premier League rejects. Uh, Dusan Tadic has done it for both teams. Uh, you've got Sebastian Haller, who is, is doing very well for Ajax at the moment. Daley Blind was probably a better United player than a lot of people gave him credit for. But the standard in the Eredivisie is so much lower. And also in the Eredivisie, Ajax are only two points clear of PSV Eindhoven. It's not an absolute certainty they'll win that league. It's not an absolute certainty they'll get in the quarterfinals of the Champions League either, uh, given the, the scoreline with Benfica. So I think there are a lot more caveats with Ten Hag. And also, if you are Ten Hag... It, it might be more logical to keep your powder dry for another year and then take over at Manchester City, where the structure of the squad is so much more stable and there's so much more ready made for him to go in there and be successful. Especially where you look at City, they've got that Barcelona strand in the background with Chiki Begiri Stein and Farron Soriano, obviously Guardiola as well. And one of the biggest influences on Barcelona in the last 50 or 60 years was Johan Cruyff, who was, of course, schooled by Ajax. So I still think that Ten Hag would be a hell of a lot more suitable for City uh, when, if or when Pep Guardiola does decide to leave when his contract expires in 2023.
4: You mentioned there that the new Manchester United manager is going to have a central part in this rebuild from this summer onwards. And as you say, it may not involve Champions League football. Where are Manchester United at at the moment in terms of planning for that rebuild? Because like you see stories coming out last week about Arsenal and them even trying to, to plan a squad overhaul again this summer, even if they get Champions League football. With all the leaks from Manchester United, there's no sense that plans are afoot to get that rebuild going because you would suspect that transfer plans would want to be at least sketched out at this point in the season
6: they would prefer to have the manager in place before the end of the season whether it's a an official announcement an informal agreement a gentleman's agreement they they would just rather know certainty who their manager is going to be for next season but they are compromised by the fact that Champions League qualification is far from a certainty. Um, If if they do get it, I I suspect it will be in the last weeks of of the season. You you don't see United coming anywhere near to boxing off Champions League qualification with games to spare. Um, You you go back to Mourinho's first season there. I mean, they finished sixth. Uh, They only got into the Champions League by winning the Europa League uh, which was in the final game of the season, he actually uh, compiled two separate lists, depending on whether they're in the Europa League the next season or the Champions League, because, of course, it does compromise who, who you can target. I think in Solskjaer's first summer in 2019, United's pool in the transfer market had not been that low for decades. It was an overestimation to say they had to sign Daniel James from Swansea, and Wan-Bissaka from... Uh, Crystal Palace Harry Maguire came in from Leicester who were pr- probably a bottom half table uh, side at that point maybe, maybe a little bit high up but they'd, they'd not long got rid of Claude Puel and Brendan Rogers had only got his feet under the table there so that restricted United who they could target in terms of a marquee defender and they needed a big money central defensive signing that summer they were never going to get Matthias to lit because one he's represented by Mina Raiola and secondly they didn't have Champions League football to offer him uh, other options like kaldukula Bali that was a non-starter just because of how much Napoli wanted for him so they were pretty much railroaded into signing Harry Maguire for a world record fee uh, just because he played for Leicester and Leicester w- weren't as fashionable then as they have been in in recent years I suppose um, so it's it's not a great position to be in. I think the next Premier League season begins in 140-odd days or something like that, which really doesn't seem very far away at all. And United have got to cram an awful lot into that and they're going to have a pretty exhausting pre-season tour as well by the sound of things going off to Thailand and Australia. Uh, I think that's due to be confirmed soon. So really they do need to get the manager situation sorted as soon as possible and I suppose if if Ajax do go out in the Champions League tonight, then where it comes down to Pocatino and Ten Hag, you've got two prime candidates there who aren't, um, aren't tied by Champions League football or focusing on the Champions League for the rest of the season, never mind the prospect of possibly meeting United in the knockout stage.
3: You have to think that if Manchester United is being run properly, they're doing some due diligence on the possibility that Thomas Tuco might be available in the summer. Is there anything going on on that front and, and would that be a an even better solution than either Potts or Ten Hag?
6: They wouldn't rule it out. It, they'd be they'd be daft to rule it out. Uh, personally, I think Tuchel blows Pochettino and Ten Hag out of the water. Uh, you're also weakening a rival as well if you can convince him to, to, to leave Chelsea or prize him away from Chelsea. I, I suspect he's probably unattainable. Uh, Chelsea, you know, with the way it's going with the sanctions. I don't see the government allowing them to go bust. Um, you know, I think it's probably in everyone's interest that a buyer does come in sooner rather than later, provided that the, the buyer, you know, is, is is pretty palatable. Really, I don't think the Premier League wants blood money on its hands um, anymore. It, there's been enough of that already. There's, there wasn't enough outrage over the, the takeover of Newcastle earlier in the season. It's it's taken. Uh, A war for us to get to this stage which frankly is pretty embarrassing for English football and pretty shameful so the the identity of of, of the buyer of Chelsea uh, is is important on on that front but I mean there were some reports the other day that Tuchel said he's not going anywhere until the end of the season, he he was never going to walk away from Chelsea, it would have been too difficult for that to happen anyway but I think when you look at what he's done at Chelsea and PSG, uh, when you see him, how he comes across in press conferences as well, which you can never underestimate. He's, very, he's been very you know, statesmanlike at times. He's certainly handled it a lot better than Eddie Howe has um, at the weekend with the question he was asked about the the H one executions in, in Saudi Arabia, and he just said he wanted to stick to football. I think Tuchel has handled the situation given how fraught this has been for Chelsea. Very commendably, and it, he always struck me as a pretty um, good option for United when, when when I was sitting in on his press conferences when PSG were playing against United three years ago or uh, start of last season as well. Um, he's won the Champions League. Uh, he's he's probably a more um, in, in recent years he's been more successful than Pochettino. He's he's, he's got Chelsea to other finals as well. United would probably be a more stable club than Chelsea, but I still suspect that given the, uh, the the urgency in which they're trying to sort out che- Chelsea takeover, the, the first thing that the new uh, the new owner would want to do would be to ensure that Tuchel doesn't go anywhere.
3: All right, Samuel, great to have you with us again. Thanks William, million for joining us. Cheers. Thank you. That's Samuel Luckhurst there. He's the Chief Manchester United Writer for the Manchester Evening News, giving us some thoughts on um, everything but the football tonight. Like, we didn't even get a chance to talk about it. That's how much soap opera there is around Man United at the moment
4: yeah it does it just does have the sense of a, a club that are kind of making it up as they go along and even the fact that he said there that Jose Mourinho had a, a plan A and a plan B with regards to qualifying for the Champions League actually seems like pretty good forward planning in the, the Jose era so I wonder if they have that under Ranić I'm, I'm not sure
3: they must do they, there must be like surely yeah 11 minutes past 9 this morning here on OTBAM, brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day has Owen booked the Monday off after the All-Ireland final yet sure if, if Kerry win I mean you're doing you're doing the show live from the rollover oh yeah we'll make, we'll make that a deal yeah sure as long as it's not counted as a day's annual leave I'll be up for that yeah yeah no it's not <laughs> And like good negotiation there, Owen. Yeah. You're, you're gonna be working pissed on Monday morning after <laughs> the a deal, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going viral, baby. Wow. I, I really got Where would you be? Would, you wouldn't be is is the All Ireland final on a Saturday, am I wrong this year? Well oh, good question actually. I hope it is. Oh well, if it is then that could change things or dramatically then he
4: then could be in a in a different county altogether. Um yeah, the last time Kerry won the All Ireland, uh that would not have been a half seven in the morning would not have been a good uh good time to,
3: to check in. Uh, let me just You talk amongst yourself there While I find out What day of the week The 24th of July is It's, it's a Sunday it's a, it's a Sunday right Okay I thought, I thought we'd all agree Five o'clock Saturday evening Was the perfect time I mean, Yeah
4: that's just One of those great things From Covid That, that just uh Should've kept That just left Yeah um, I I don't know I, I, I'm i kind of a bit of a Traditionalist I kind of like the Sunday afternoon All Ireland final Though I don't mind it at all Because uh, Like I guess you can enjoy The weekend before it as well just prolong the pain and the anxiety.
3: Oh, as somebody who's always involved. No, so I was just a, a neutral observer. But did you not prefer like having the Sunday to lick your wounds last year? That was a semi-final. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Did you? And exactly, that was a Saturday night. I spent row. spent the day looking for my phone. <laughs> That's not connected, though, really. (laughs) That That could have happened to you on any Saturday night. That was was a different wound. At any given moment. It just happened to uh, walk around with one hand. All right. Uh, (laughs) It's Cheltenham today, the start of it. Uh, John Duggan is already at the race course. We will talk to him next. OTB AM. All right. It's 14 minutes past nine. The. I was listening to a piece yesterday, I won't say where, but there was like every single Cheltenham cliche in the space of about ten seconds. The the Cheltenham Roar, the Presbury Park, the the all the stuff. It's like and I guess it's because the Olympics of national hunt I guess it's because there's not that many superlatives left when you're talking about something that happens every year and that year on year always delivers. John Duggan, good morning to you. Your challenge is to um shoehorn as many of the cliches as you possibly can into the, the uh, next ten minutes.
0: Well, this is the mecca of jump racing. This is the National Hunt Olympics, as you say, Jar. And the deafening roar will go up a half one for the Supreme Officers Hurdle when the tapes go up. Don't lose your shirt, folks. You know it's a long week. Oh, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Is that enough?
3: Yeah, we're done. We're done. Good. A great start. Uh, what's it like?
0: Uh, it's dry. That's the first thing. It's cold. It's dry. The ground is dry and Good to soft ground. Um, a lot of anticipation here. Uh, that we're getting back to some semblance of normality. We know what happened two years ago with COVID. It shouldn't happen this festival. Then last year is behind closed doors. And just for Rachel Blackmore herself, not to be able to lead in honeysuckle with all the cheers of the fans, it must have been a very strange feeling for her. And you'd hope that today she can do it in the champion hurdle at half three. The horse has never been beaten. And just to see people back and join themselves, obviously this is a very sobering aspect to this with the war going on in Ukraine. Uh, The last race today is sponsored uh, by the Ukraine Appeal, so there's uh, invitations to the racegoers to donate to the Red Cross. Cheltenham will be doing that as well. So, uh, obviously, we're thinking about other people who are not having uh, as fortunate a time as ourselves this week. You know? Yeah,
3: okay. We, we, we'll talk a bit more about that later. Later on, can you just give us a little bit about what else apart from honeysuckle? Because we we do a deep dive. Yeah. We love we love honeysuckle on this show. Um, what else should people be looking out for today?
0: Well, it's the return of Gordon Elliott, isn't it? Last year he was serving a band, and East Foster had the horses in training here at Tottenham and Gordon Elliott's back and he's got a lot of chances in in many of the races I think he's going to have a very good week I think William Mullins is going to have a very good week Uh, it's very much going to be lads a continuation I think with the fact that it takes a while for any kind of uh, cycles to change and with 23 out of 28 winners last year and with bumper horses and good novice hurdlers then become like proper chasers proper hurdlers it, it's hard for the british contingent here to just turn the tide in a year and i don't think that's going to happen this year i think there's going to be a lot of irish trained winners um and i think that there's a, a lot of potential stars even in the first race you know you have kill crush a Dysart Dynamo, uh, if I'm looking at a horse has been backed more than anything else this morning, it's Dysart Dynamo for William Mullins and Paul Tennant and the first in the Supreme Office's hurdle at 2-1 to one now. The Constitution Hill is very well regarded, Mighty Potter it's going to be an excellent race to start, so a lot of it is about the stars of uh, today which is Honey but also the stars of the future which you're going to get out of that first race and in the bumper tomorrow Fasal Vega, Redemption Day American Mike these could be the stars of the future that we're talking about as potential champion chasers or Gold Cup horses in the future you know
3: Um, One of the things that you like to do is just to make sure that you're keeping an eye on where the big movers are on the day to see where the money's going that's generally a sense that somebody somewhere has got good word but the trouble is that around festivals like this everybody has word the shoeshine boy is giving you stock tips today
0: <laughs> yeah it's was it police police squad or police academy or, or I can't remember the, 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 the Leslie Nielsen show um, look you've got to trust your own opinion like for example I re- read Ruby Walton the Examiner and Patrick Mullins in the Indo today and they both tipped Crush in the first race uh, there's a family connection with that horse. He was second in the bumper last year. He hasn't run that well so far this season, but I think he could be coming to a uh, cherry ripe situation with Kilcroft. But he's drifting in the betting. He's right at nine to one now. So there you go. So the other horse in the yard, Dysart Dynamo, the man at the stable jockey Paul Tannen, is the one that's getting all the money. You just got to trust your own judgment and your own opinion, I think, in this. 28 races, a lot of races, and I think it's better to be more conservative. And like, for example, the Arkle chase the second race today wouldn't go near it think it's too difficult to work out and then the Boodles hurdle, anybody getting involved in that race, which is at ten to five, you know, just needs their head examined. Because there's twenty four run- twenty two runners and there's a horse at the top of the betting Gaelic Warrior that hasn't even run outside of France. But he's just so well regarded in the Willie Mullins yard; they think it's a certainty. But like, if you if you're if you're trying to get uh, a, a Cheltenham week off to a good start by backing in those races, you, you're you really taking risks. So therefore, I think it's just a case of just being sensible and, and maybe looking for something later in the week if you don't fancy it today.
4: I, I, I'm I'm not really up to speed on any of the anti-post betting, but the one horse I'd heard about that a friend of mine had put a, a decent way, on in the anti-post was Gaelic Warrior. So uh, all of a sudden, uh, his chances don't seem so uh, so secure, John.
0: Well, I think if you get them at eight to one or ten to one each yeah. way, absolutely, it's a great bet. But at the moment, to look at a five to two in the betting lads, and that's way too short for me. You ought to be maybe like if they're paying five or six places for each way, you'd be looking at some of the Gordon Elliott horses. Gordon Elliott's got a good record in this race. Um, Paul Nichols has got a good record in this race. He's got x One. If you like the band, dead um, by twenty-five, twenty-eight to one. So. Look, it's all about value and it's not about winners or losers. Of course, if you back a winner at Chatham it does feel good. You can, you know, puff out your chest and strut down the streets of Kerry or, or Kildare lads, but uh you know, it's just just try and get some profit and try and maybe uh, back one or two and, and see if you can get ahead.
3: Yeah, be calm. Use your head. Yeah. Don't wade in. Use your head. Don't
0: yeah. wait in. Just 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 and also for example, Henry DeBronhead's yard has not been in the best of form. He hasn't had any winners in March, right? I'm just going through it here some of the statistics about Henry De Bromhead's yard, like nine winners in October, 13 in November, eight in December, four in January, seven in February. Last year, he won the champion hurdle, champion chase and Gold Cup. But if Honey disappoints today, that doesn't really give you much confidence in a Plutar or a Manella Indo later in the week or put the kettle on or even journey with me as well. So therefore, you have to be checking the hot yards. Oh, was that I was at Leopard Sand last week speak, speaking to Willie Mullins; He had four winners on the day. His yard is flying. Uh, Gary Moore's yard is doing well in the UK. Um, Nicky Henderson's has been a little bit cold. So Henry de Bromhead, it ha- has to be said, has not had the best of seasons. So hopefully his horses are coming into form at the right time, but you just don't know. And if Honey Suckle does disappoint, because I think what will ha- happen with Honey Suckle if she's going to lose, she'll have to be below her best. You
3: know? Okay. Um, if, if you want to see what's drifting in the betting, go to Oddschecker, and the the yep. ones that are in blue are shortening, and the ones that are in pink. Are yes. are drifting.
0: That's right. And okay. um, like Mar- Martellus Guy is the only other horse has been backed really in the Marist Hurdle at a price. But the, the big the big move this morning is Dysart Dynamo in the opener. Okay, but also there'll be about eleven o'clock. It'll change again.
3: Why? What happens then? Is it that's when?
0: It, the, the, just you get a sense of who's worked well, and then you start getting the players involved. The players will start getting involved. The the, 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 the people will harden the markets that are, uh, have the big money behind them. Okay. Uh, will harden the market. I remember Epiton a couple of years ago being heavily backed in the morning and then duly obliged in the champion hurdle. But oh. just because a horse drifts doesn't mean it does it. its chance is gone. It's all about what you see on the day, if you get me.
3: Yeah, 100%. Okay, so what have you got for us today, John?
0: Um, I'm napping John Bonn um, in the first race. John Bon is a full brother to Duvan. And this is trained by Nicky Henderson and will be ridden by Aidan Coleman for JP McManus. At the moment, John Bonney, on OTBSports.com, I've napped him to win only. But you can almost back him each way now because he's drifting out to about 5 to 1, 11 to 2. Look, it's all about the future stars. And John Bonne could be a future star. He's got a high cruising speed. He doesn't mind a battle. He jumps well. He is uh, a bit temperamental in that he does get a bit excited, but... I don't think Nicky Henderson's too worried about the preliminaries around the, the paddock. And I think John Bond. if there's going to be a star out of this race, I think it's John Bond. I think that he'll be, whether Kilcrut leads or Dysart Dynamo leads, I think he'll be tucked in behind them. And I think that to reach the frame, he's definitely got a big chance. And John Bond, of all the horses I've been studying over the last few days, was the one I just kind of felt was a horse that I think could be the, the star of the future. Tony McCoy said that. And I think he might be the one today for the nap. So John Bond is my nap bet at about 9 to 2, 5 to 1. Yeah. That is in the 130s. I, it,
3: it was interesting that McCoy talked about how emotional it would be for JP if this horse won. I'm like, well, I mean, the, you know, like they've they've had a lot of good horses over the years. And so they're good judges. But yet yeah, at the same time, there's other good horses in that race too. So, OK, John Bond's your nap in the first.
0: Yeah, and it would be emotional if you spent half a million on something and it won. Um, <laughs> so the 10 past uh, two is the Oracle Chase. My recommendation is no bet in that race. Um, the 250, I'm gone for Noble Yates at a price of 14 to 1, 16 to 1 now. is drifting a little bit. This horse has been bought for the Grand National by the Whaley Cones. Uh, Emmett Mullins trains it. He actually beat Gabby Nacko over a shorter distance earlier in the season. And then he was second to Ahoy Senior last time out. Uh, I think he stays. I think he's got the pace to settle up. If he jumps in a rhythm, I think Noble Yates has got an E-Trade chance. He's my E-Trade bet of the day, about 14-16s in the ultimate handicap chase. In the half-three, the champion hurdle, I'm, I'm going for appreciated against Honeysuckle. Right. Uh, I am just on the bet on the, on the prices. Look, I want Honeysuckle to win. It's it's not a, a pocket talking. I do want Honeysuckle to win. I, I would. I'm not going to be disappointed if my horse loses that I'm, that I'm tipping up. But I think Appreciated is the one that could put it up to her. Like, Quivega was sent out five times by Willie Mullins to win first time out at the festival. So I'm not worried the fact that Appreciated has not been seen since he won the Supreme Office's hurdle last year by 24 lengths. Um, we heard Sean Flanagan on the Saturday panel talking about the vibes were good. Um, I, I, I think he's working well, Appreciated. And we know he was second in that bumper behind Fernie Hollow, and the form of that has very much worked out. The times are pretty much similar to the champion hurdle last year. And if appreciated improves, and if Honeysuckle is not at our best, appreciated the 4 one might be the one to beat her. Um, In the 10 past four, which is the Mayor's hurdle, I've gone for the favourite there, Queen's Brook. Once again, strong bumper form, third in that bumper, behind Ferdy Hollow, and appreciated Queen's Brook. And Gordon Elliott, I think, is sweet on her chances. Um, The vibes are good once again, kind of tuned up, for this with a performance behind uh, burning victory queensbrook has won as a pointer i think she'll get the trip and i think that she'll be staying on up the hill uh, better than a lot of these so queensbrook is the, the, the a win only bet in the maris hurdle as i said don't go near that boodle's hurdle that juvenile hurdle unless you're uh, like owen's friend on gaelic at a good price but i think gordon eddie has got a great record in the race and he's definitely worth uh, being on the right side of in that one and in the, the last race once again, no recommendation. Vanillier, by the way, has been back lads this morning now into 3-1 to one for Gavin Cromwell. Won at the festival last year. I think Run Wild Fred, the favours is a solid favours. Uh, was second in the Irish Grand National last year, won the Troy Chase at Navin. I don't fancy Stafford. I don't think Stafford will stay. Um, so I do think it's between Run Wild Fred and Vanillier, but I'm not recommended a bet on that one. So the bets today, Queensbrook and appreciated to win. Uh, Noble
3: Yates each way and the nap lads is John Vance Okay um, The Guardian today are writing about the Irish takeover the greening and how the long term <laughs> impact on British racing might be yeah. relatively negative because you know how do the trainers convince an owner to spend a couple of hundred grand on a horse and many thousands more in training fees if you can't get a winner or even a run at Cheltenham so yeah part of me is like well tough luck that's just how life works and part of me is like well you know I understand a little bit about what the point you're making
0: well I walked around here in 2017 when we had 19 winners obviously nobody was here last year and I felt I was a punch of puncher and that was a sort of strange feeling to have at a Cheltenham festival where you come here two decades ago and you really felt like an underdog and if Istabrak won we'd be all happy for the week uh, so I do think British racing is, is facing challenges uh, prize money is one thing and And as you said there, like for Cheebly Park Stud or for uh, construction companies to be sending horses to William Mullins and Gordon Elliott, it's not a good look for the British owners uh, and and, and for the British trainers. So I think the British trainers can train. It's just that the owners need to have faith in them that they'll keep their horses here. But if you see the success of of Willie and and Gordon and uh, that they can get these, they've got these contacts in in the points field in Ireland and also in the the French market, uh, it's hard to kind of swing the tide. But um, institutionally, british racing uh needs to up its game as it were and um we want to see a a good healthy rivalry here it's almost it's become something that the 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 irish is is so important to cheltenham that they they boosted this whole ireland england thing and now it's got to the stage where it's almost like it's 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 now got out of control and uh and it's got to the stage where um, they, they want to be almost paying it down because they don't want to be coming in with a little English flag five times a week. Because to be honest, three, four decades ago, most of the most of the jockeys were Irish anyway. Most of the horses came from Ireland. They were just sold because our, our country was so poor. So um, you just you'd, you'd hope that um, it's a more level playing field. But uh, the more you push a narrative, and the more it's going one sided, the harder it is to change it
3: yeah alright John we leave it there happy punting All right, lads we'll talk to you Thanks. tomorrow cheers more from John of course across the day on otbsports.com and on the radio this evening with Joe a reminder OTB AM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day uh, talking about the League of Ireland Peter says 3,500 out at Turner's Cross last night big Waterford support that's 4,950 4,340 and 3,500 in the first three home games for Cork City obviously, I, I think you're going to get more on the Friday than you will on the Monday for these games. So uh, they are great attendances. Yes, yeah, so I'm going into First Division as well. And uh, to, to kind of see these
4: uh, massive bases outside of Dublin getting uh, big turnouts is, is great. And obviously, we had this conversation with Vinnie Perth last week about Sligo potentially being you know, one of, one of the clubs that will be the envy of the rest of the country, with the exception maybe of, of Shamrock Rovers, with the new development that will be happening there as well. There's massive life in the league uh, in other parts of Ireland as well, even though it sometimes feels very Dublin-centric.
3: Uh, Dara says is there a way to get more Mike Ross on OTB hugely bright knowledgeable man explaining the scrum dynamics and tactics it's a gap in rugby analysis at the moment and Stephen says the English fans got to the French ref and he decided to calm them with all the scrum penalties and he did uh, there is a bit of like I've sent somebody off in the first minute now I have to
4: even it up a little bit it's only natural it's subconscious them. 80,000 people
3: screaming at you yeah if we'd lost the game and everybody was coming out afterwards saying the referee was a disgrace, it would definitely seem like sour grapes. It's okay to do it when you win, yeah. <laughs> Uh One last thing, Tyrone are in crisis, you say.
4: Yeah, I definitely think that this is as big a story as Dublin were on Sunday I think uh, Tyrone were pretty poor for a lot of it now the thing is Tyrone were absolutely appalling in a very famous game last year and ended up winning the All-Ireland so maybe it doesn't matter but there's a couple of things like I mean discipline is a, is a massive issue for them uh, at the moment the Hampsey thing on Cormac Oslo was silly to, to say the least uh, and especially after being black-hearted like, and sent off at the,
3: earlier in the season I see though that he's not going to serve any suspension extra for this
4: yeah uh, it's, for a different offence yeah you um, have also got like, the, the the brawl against Armagh running into things, which maybe is just one random flashpoint, but there is a little bit of a trend emerging, certainly if we if want we, to overreact to the first five games of the league here. And I'm not kind of sure how they cur- curtailed it over the next little while. Like We we, we lauded Dublin over the last little while because of how strong their depth was. And while there may not have been a Conor McKenna or a Colin McShane walking away from the throne panel, the depth that they've lost as a result of the players that they have lost. And I'm fair, it's like someone like Tiernan McCann, who played a significant amount last year, like that all adds up to a, a massive weakening of that squad, especially given we know that Tyrone have form in terms of backing an All-Ireland up. Like, I don't fully buy into historical trends or anything like that. You it's keep bringing it up, though. Yeah, you, lo- you love bringing it up. Like, it no, tries I, to... I bring it up all the time. It slightly buttresses your argument. No, 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 I bring it up all the time because you constantly bring that you're not oh, society... I didn't bring it up. No, no, I live around no, free in your head, but this is that's it. It's over. This is the argument. An over. isolated point. We, we've all won. This is you an know. isolated point. <laughs> the argument is not over. It, well, it Don said it once. They were team of the decade once. The All Ireland in 2009 was one and you could tally up how many All ireland won. The argument oh God, was done. I didn't done. even bring
3: it up. The argument I didn't was done. even bring it but up. That's
4: usually when this backing things up uh, argument comes up. This is
3: separate. as is the first time I brought it up in isolation of that. It's not. No, you brought it up every... Every single performance rankings, we know we know historically that they're no good. I'm like, well, how is this relevant to this year? It's just not relevant. I know, well, like I mean, it's it's just interesting
4: though. Like I mean, how is how is Mayo's failings of you know the 90s and 2000s and the 2010s relevant to this current Mayo team? It's not relevant at all. But if they lose in All Ireland this year, you can be sure as hell that it'll be brought up multiple times. So I'm <laughs> not I'm not saying it's overly relevant, but it's it's just curious that that Tyrone have a a, a record of, of not backing things mm. <laughs> up. So. <laughs> Toronto are going to be island ireland this year aren't they I d- I that's what's going to happen here this will get clipped and it'll be sent back to us on the well is the 25th
3: of July yeah I'll that be, is I'll why be it's glorious. crying into a pint at 9am OTB AM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day I want to tell you about what's uh, coming up on OTB Sports Radio today it's a look back with some of the heroes of Wexford's 1956 win the late greats Art Foley and Ned Wheeler Dadcast from 3 your Culture Hall of Fame is Joe Cole the actor, not the footballer. OTB Gold is Joe Malloy me through Walsh. And live tonight from 7 o'clock with Champions League updates and much more. It's Joe and the rest on Off the Ball on Talk. You can get it right here on OTB Sports Radio. Just tell your smart speaker to play OTB Sports Radio. And away you go. All day long, top quality sports radio content in your earballs. balls. Um, tomorrow morning on the show... We'll hear more from John Duggan from Shelton. Of course, Andy Mitten will give us his reaction to either a spectacularly important uh, staging post on Manchester United's recovery or an empty victory over an Atletico team who are fading or a crushing blow to uh, their hopes for the rest of the season. Keith Wood will talk to us about his take on the scrum and a preview of the weekend's games as well. And Tommy Walsh joins us as well. So it's going to be a blockbuster show on the eve of St. Patrick's Day for you. OTB.